This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who is away for the day, but he shall return. Do not despair. I'm joined here uh, by or with Cole Wissinger. Good morning, Jeffrey. Super excited to have him back from his long, long trip to Pittsburgh. He'll be back with us again on Friday for screen cleaning. Yep. Super excited about that as well. And uh, speaking of screen cleaning, we have a couple of guests on the show today that Really could have been on uh, screen cleaning. And our first guest, actually, uh, we're going to be speaking with Amanda Lotz, who's going to be talking about ESPN and the decline of cable television. This is kind of a hot topic because a lot of people are cutting their cable uh, cords. They're getting rid of the hefty cable bill. And, uh, it's you know, you get in this two-year contract – And after you're in the contract, all these cable companies start coming out with all these great deals that that their existing customers are no longer eligible for, only for new customers. There's just no reward to sticking around. I spent the entire time while I was visiting my elderly parents trying to convince them that it's time to cut their cord. Yeah, and, you know, we'll be talking to her about Netflix and Hulu and YouTube, and there are just so many other options out there that are so much cheaper, and you can pick and choose what you want to watch, and you don't have to have, you know, $65 worth of nothing sitting on your DVR that you'll never get around to. But don't cut your ESPN until after today. Today is August 8th, 8-8, and all day today on ESPNU, which is kind of devoted to college sports. BYU fans might be interested in that. But ESPNU today has become ESPN The Ocho. Really? With all of the ridiculous sports you hoped to ever see on television gathered together. I spent last night watching some disc golf championship. No. The World Darts Championship will be on later today, etc. <laughs> wow. Whenever you say Ocho, it just makes me think of nachos. Mm. Then I get hungry. I thought you were going to say that today is 8-8, which means that it is bowling day. That, of course, is the sound of me getting a strike, something I frequently do. You know, I once bowled a 210, and nobody believed me. I even had the printout to prove it. Nobody believed me. 210, to get a 210, you have to get six strikes in a row, or at least that's what I did. It Bowling was kind of, scoring is a different kind of math that you have to go and get a different kind of degree for. I don't even bother. I just pay attention to what the screen tells me I have. Mm-hmm. What's your highest bowling score, Cole? So I haven't cracked 200 yet, but in my final semester here at BYU, I will be taking a bowling class. There you go. This fall. So we'll see. I'll update you with my high scores as we go. Terry, what's the highest score you've ever gotten? No idea. <laughs> don't really pay attention. Come Just, on. No, I'm serious. You don't, I have no idea. You don't frame these and put them up in your room? No. See, the 210 was a fluke. The only, the closest I've ever gotten to that is a 190, and now it's just, if you break 100, it's a good, it's a good time. <laughs> anyway, it's bowling day. It's also happiness 
happens day. So if you're happy today, you know, it happens. Sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. Hopefully it happens for you more often than not. All that ahead. But first, let's talk to Terry South, who's going to be giving us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry, what's up? Manhunt is underway after a rookie police officer was shot and killed at a traffic stop in Clinton, Missouri. Police said the officer, Gary Michael, who was uh, with the force less than a year, pulled over a suspicious vehicle around 1045 p.m. on Sunday, according to Missouri State Highway Patrol. When Michael exited his vehicle to initiate contact with the driver, he was shot. Uh, They added that the officer fired back, but it's unknown if the uh, driver was struck. Investigators told ABC News Monday that uh, the officer initially pulled over the driver because the vehicle's headlights were off. And once Michael ran the plates, he discovered the vehicle's plates were also expired. The police have a person of interest they are searching for. As I said, that manhunt is underway. Just a few weeks ahead of the 16th anniversary of September 11th, 2001 attacks, the New New York City Medical Examiner's Office was able to identify the remains of a man killed at the World Trade Center. The man, whose name was withheld at the request of his family, is the World Trade Center's 1,641st identified victim. Medical Examiner's Office says they have been unable to identify the remains of 1,112 people or about 40% of those who died in the attacks. Earlier this year, the medical examiner's office started using new DNA technology and started testing remains again. This is what helped them identify the man's remains after earlier testing gave them no results. It's the first new victim identified since March of 2015. So there's well over 1,000 people that are unaccounted for from that attack back in 2001. I still can't believe that was 16 years ago. Yeah. Sheesh. Long time. Um, On Monday, Netflix made its first ever acquisition, snapping up a comic book publisher, Miller World. Are you familiar with them? No. Uh, While terms of the deal were not disclosed, Netflix apparently plans to use Miller World's 18 separate character worlds, which is crazy for something that, you know, has been greatly... I guess obscure. It's interesting. So they have uh, they've created films and TV shows and children's TVs, children's series. That's kind of the plan. Is just yeah. there's a wide variety of topics they can use. Their comic narratives have already been used in three successful movie franchises, including Wanted and The Kingsman. Oh yeah, which they have the uh, sequel to that one coming out the end of September. Those were both big hits, and together they've grossed close to a billion dollars in box office revenue worldwide. So they've shown that. They have some legs to them. So there you go. Netflix purchased them. It's a third major comic book publisher to be bought by a larger media company. This is kind of weird because it goes Warner Brothers acquired by DC, or they acquired DC Comics in 1968. So they're going to reference that with this story that happened yesterday, <laughs> but that's fine. And Disney, of course, purchased Marvel in 2009. So Netflix is tossing their hat in trying to uh, get into that sort of... so vein of topics and uh, you know characters and different franchises they can try to turn into properties 18 characters 18 it says character universes what did it say it said 18 separate character worlds so how do they make a children's show out of characters like from wanted and well, it won't kingsman be, it and- won't be that they have other characters that huh. are more kid friendly okay you know what i mean so there's a variety <laughs> of topics they can pick from Hmm. It's not all rated R content, which is wanted and uh, and uh, what was the other Kingsman. one? Oh, Kingsman. Those yeah. are those are more adult. Yes, you know, okay, fair, but uh, they could good. have kid friendly type topics. Dude, it's interesting. And Can I, you I, name one uh, kid friendly Netflix original? 
Um, there's uh, Dino Trucks. Beat okay. Bugs. Beat Bugs. Beat Bugs. Uh, Voltron's on there. That's kid-friendly. Good for you guys. I, it just seems like anybody out there that is interested in creating kid-friendly uh, original content would have an easy sell to Netflix because they don't really have a lot, it seems. Or it's not really what was the one? as prominent as the other no. R-rated ones. Dream Wor- DreamWorks has put out several. One of them was um, – Is it Turbo? There's Turbo. Turbo, well, Turbo just – I think they had a TV series. Yeah, there was the dragons. They were flying – the guys that tamed – they tamed dragons. How to train your dragon. Yeah, there you go. They have a, there's a TV series. <laughs> there's a series of those. Okay. Um, and then Puss in Boots. Yeah. They've recently put out one of those, and on your iPad, it's actually a choose-your-own-adventure. Hmm. And so my son loves it because as you scroll through, you know, on your, your iPad, you scroll through and all the offerings on Netflix, they're all just static pictures, except the one for Puss in Boots, he's waving at you. Oh, yes. I've yeah. seen that. And so you hit it, and it's fun because he, he all of a sudden goes, what should I do? Should I do this or should I do this? And the kid can select and go oh, that direction down the I'm path. I'm going to show that to my girls. I think they would enjoy that. So instead of Dora the Explorer waiting for you to yell at the screen, you right. actually can interact with the screen. Yes. Yeah, and they're testing it out because they want to do more possibly interactive uh, content that way because the kid could you know, find it more of, a, of something more enjoyable other than just staring at the screen, which they do anyways. I recently read uh, a couple of those Choose Your Own Adventure books right. to my girls. Mm-hmm. And I think they were a little scared, but they and but they always want to read the one about the witch in the scary house. Yeah, and uh, you know they'll tell me which which adventure they want to choose, and I'll I'll be like, no, we already did that one. We're gonna open up the cellar door. <laughs> right. Now those books, you get to the bottom of the page. It usually gives you two or three options. Right. And you go to that page. You flip to page sixty-eight. Then you go down to the end of page sixty-eight and go to page four. You know that kind of thing. I, my first time picking up one of those books in elementary school, I read it cover to cover. Oh, really? So confusing. Oh, my goodness. Like, the story's horrible. If you just read every single page in order, you're like, I don't get this. And finally, you're like, oh, wait. Yeah. Every single page told me to go to a different page. So Hmm. I would write down every individual page number, and then I would just go through an adventure as, you know, as I chose, and then I would make sure that I some I, in the end I would I will have gone through every single page of that adventure so I could find out what happened in every scenario. Oh wow! I I've had to edit them down a little bit for my girls. Yeah. You know when somebody dies falls over from a heart attack yeah. I will say then he fell down and was tired or <laughs> was he got hurt. <laughs> I have to edit sometimes for the kids. Finally, this this story, I, I found this quite funny yesterday. A real estate savvy couple is now the proud owner of the streets and sidewalks of an uber wealthy, uber exclusive San Francisco gated community in Presidio Terrace. Whoa. Which is right near a, a, an exclusive golf course. Right? Yeah. So the residents of the 35 mega mansions lining this private oval-shaped street are pushing back again. Uh, uh, pushing back reports the San Francisco Chronicle. The uh, South Bay couple, they're from San Jose, I believe. Uh, Tina Lam and Michael Chang scooped up the street in a city-run auction for a little over $90,000 in 2015. What? So no. the, the street was up for grabs due to an unpaid property taxes that the Community Homeowners Association neglected to pay for 30 years. Oh, my goodness. Right? That's so they, big. They, they, they That's didn't huge. Pay, they didn't pay property taxes on the street and the common areas in this oval. So, like, there's a green, like, little park area in the middle. For 30 years. For 30 years. Now, it says, seeking to recover the $14 owed per year, the city put the street up for sale. 
right? So it's $14 a year. I, I'm imagining they didn't know this existed. Wow. Right? Plus interest and penalties, the bill amounted to a whopping $994. Right? Oh, my goodness. And you're looking, as it says here, uber-wealthy, uber-exclusive, private And they didn't pay $14 a year. Right. So the residents say they didn't know about the back taxes or sale until this May when the title search company hired by Chang and Lam sent out letters asking property owners if they were interested in buying the street back. Hmm. So all of a sudden... I wonder if they're going to charge more than $994 for that. Maybe. I'm guessing. Chang, Chang and Lam's property comes with plenty of financial opportunity, including making residents pay for the street parking in front of their own home. Oh, on a private road. What a slap in the face. The Homeowners Association has petitioned the Board of Supervisors to negate the sale. A hearing is scheduled for October, and uh, they sued the couple and the city in an attempt to block the property being sold to anyone else while the appeal is pending. So they just can't get out of the situation and pass it off, and they have to deal with somebody else. So they could charge like 150 bucks a parking spot. There's, there's, I think there's about 70 to 120 something parking spots around this oval and they're private streets. Apparently they're all over San Francisco and they pay $14. It's a, some mandate by the city. It's $14 a year in property taxes for the street and common areas. You'd think it'd be higher in such a posh, you know, wealthy neighborhood. Yeah. Kudos for San Francisco for not. (laughs) Succumbing to inflation and keeping that fourteen dollars <laughs> firm. And so th- these these two, you know, this couple looking for property. You, you uh, uh, different cities and things will put things up for auction, and so they start looking through all the records and they're like, "Wait a second, look at this!" And so they bought it. No, they outbid a couple other people, and then the letters go out and like the people that have lived there that own these massive houses have no idea that someone just <laughs> bought the street out in front of their house. See, you know, uh, it makes. Perfect business sense, but I don't think that this couple is going to be invited to any of the neighborhood block parties. No. I don't think I'm, they I'm want just to guessing, be, though. Going out on a limb. What could you get for someone's street? Oof. I have no idea. I, can't, I cannot believe that that was overlooked for 30 years. Yeah. Wow. It's pretty funny. So they're, they're up in arms trying to stop it, and the, the guy that owns it's like, hey, I just wanted to know if you guys wanted to buy your street back. Yeah, I'll, I'll sell it back to you for a generous hundred fifty thousand dollars. You, you pay whatever massive amounts these mega mansions are, and you can't park in front of your house. Yeah, that'd be a little. Well, mega mansions have mega garages, right? Well, they have They're garages. They're not hurting. No, but at the same time, if anyone shows up, do they pull? I mean, you, they have to pay. They have to pay because it's a parking spot. Or do you rent it out to anyone in the area that wants to park on the street? They're never going to have visitors ever again. You just have random people just pulling their Buick up in front of the house. Can we go to Uncle John's house? Yeah. Nope. It's $150. <laughs> Maybe in a couple of years. When we've saved up a little more money. Wow. Well, good for them for, for paying attention, I guess, and, and uh, striking while the iron was hot and... Getting that uh, that sale or getting purchasing that uh, that land, wow! Anyway, just a reminder to uh, pay your bills, pay attention to the fine print, then you won't have to pay to park in front of your own home. That's all right. We don't like it when people park in front of our home anyway. That hundred fifty dollar price tag keeps them away. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, Terry just uh, shared some information about Netflix and some of the content that's on there, and it's it's crazy. 
just the amount of original content that is being created for streaming services like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime and YouTube. I mean, so much so that a lot of people are ditching their cable in favor of these new services. And our next guest, Amanda Lotz, is going to be talking to us about ESPN, some of the problems that they're having, and also a little bit about what the future of cable is, whether there's going to continue to be a decline or not. When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. And uh, we're, we're going to be speaking with Amanda Lotz, who is uh, a professor of media studies at the University of Michigan. Earlier this spring, ESPN announced that they were laying off more people. And over the past two years, ESPN has lost around 7 million subscribers. And Cole, during the break, was saying how sad that makes him. Cable subscriptions in general have been on the decline since companies such as Sling, Netflix, and Hulu have taken over the entertainment industry. But does the downfall of ESPN show a stronger trend in the decline of cable television? Well, here to speak with us today is Amanda Lotz, who, as I mentioned, is a professor of media studies at the University of Michigan and the author of the book, We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It. Amanda, welcome back to The Matt Townsend Show. Very glad to join you, Jeff. So uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about this uh, because I am currently contemplating cutting my cable so that we can just focus more on streaming services such as Netflix and Hulu and Amazon Prime. Uh, I was hoping that you could start off by talking to us a little bit about the evolution of television and and cable television and and some of the purposes and how things have changed throughout the years. Sure. So as television launched in the United States, it was first available only by broadcast. Uh, which meant if you can remember back, you probably had an antenna up. Uh, you received those signals over the air. But in some parts of the country, uh, typically in mountainous areas, there were obstacles that prevented those broadcast signals from reaching households. And that was where the cable industry came from, uh, was to help those homes that were down in the valleys receive those same signals. And so for the first 20, 30 years of cable history, it was nothing more than a service that brought broadcast channels to the home. Then in the 1970s, uh, some regulations changed and the industry actually began to develop its own content and its own channels. And that's sort of where we've been since the, through the 1980s, but that was really the decade that cable took off in the United States. What has changed recently is that a new way for video content to arrive at your home developed, and that's over the Internet. And so this can be really confusing because for many of us, our Internet provider and our cable provider is the same company. Um, And so sometimes we think about these things as being different and sometimes the same. Um, And so I can talk you through some of the differences between the technologies and the way that we're paying for them. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned in in, uh, in We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, how cable transformed tele- television and the Internet revolutionized it. You talked about 
ESPN, and you say that ESPN was the the top grossing network, and how that's changed. Why do you think it has changed? Well, the perception has largely been that ESPN was invincible to some of the changes that were developing, and that has to do with the particularity of ESPN's content. So whereas other programs, let's say you like The Walking Dead, but maybe you're willing to wait for it to come on another service or you're going to record it and watch it later. So all of these changes that DVRs brought to some of our viewing behaviors uh, that took away people from that live advertiser-based audience, ESPN really was immune from that because so many of the sports contests, people aren't recording those and watching them later. They're watching them live. So that was one thing that ESPN that may had that made it different. And then the second thing is, is real exclusivity. Uh, because of the, the multi-million and billion dollar licenses that ESPN was willing to pay for different sports leagues, they really were the only place to access a lot of those contests. And so if you were a fan of something and the only place you could watch it was on ESPN, uh, then you know, that really made ESPN a must-have for cable subscribers. The result of that was ESPN is owned by Disney, and that really having that kind of must-have content gave Disney a lot of power in the negotiations that take place between the cable channels, uh, so ESPN, uh, CNN, PBS, all of those channels. They negotiate deals with your cable provider. So cable is actually two different businesses, cable channels and cable providers. So for me, my cable provider is Comcast, but it could also be a satellite provider like DirecTV. For each home that receives ESPN, uh, a cable provider pays a monthly fee. And so ESPN's fee was much is much, much higher than any other cable channels. And that's because ESPN could say, well, if you don't carry us, you know, people are going to go to your, your competing service because we are offering this content that no one else can access. Yeah. And, and, and that's really what sort of set ESPN up to be in this position where it was perceived as different from the rest of the cable industry. You know, it's interesting because I'm actually a Los Angeles Dodgers fan, and the only place you can watch those games is uh, if you have Time Warner Cable. At which, of course, I don't. So that excludes a lot of people from seeing those games. Um, interesting. So do you feel like ESPN is, is a good representation of, of the rest of the cable industry? Well, I think we had started to see some change in the rest of the industry. And what really caught has caught people by surprise was the fact that ESPN um, is proving vulnerable as well. And the, the big change, I guess, if we've had a number of changes in the last few years, but the, the, the thing that's changed in the last just one or two years, I'd say really since 2015, has been the emergence of these other services. Um, you might have heard them called skinny bundles. Um, right. In the industry, we call them virtual MVPDs, which is a mouthful. Um, but these are companies, or these are services like Sling TV, uh, Sony View. In the last year, both Hulu and YouTube are, have launched these services as well. And what they are is a package of channels that is delivered to you by internet. So it's a lot like cable, but it's actually coming over the internet. And yeah. what that's done is it's changed the, the economics of the business some. 
Yeah, you know, and speaking of the internet, I and getting back to the Dodgers too. Um, <laughs> uh, instead of watching a three or a four hour game, I can go online and just see a minute and a half highlight of all the best parts of the game. And then I don't have to see all the lulls and play. I can just focus on the best of the game. So, yeah, it seems like there are other options now for people to get the same entertainment in a shorter amount of time and not get it from ESPN. Right. It's interesting that you bring up baseball because Major League Baseball really has been at the forefront of a lot of the technological change and with its MLB TV um, internet distributed service. So, you know, that was something where if you are truly a baseball fan and you can't access your team because maybe you don't live in that market and you know, as you note, um, your service provider doesn't have those games, uh, they've made a very good business out of creating a internet provided service for fans to reach those games. Um, And so I think we're seeing MLB being pretty far ahead of some of the other sports in in that way. And I think that has to do with some of the particularities of baseball in comparison with other sports. Um, But I think we are likely to see more of those sorts of packages being made available directly by the leagues uh, in, in coming years. Amanda, let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk to you a little bit more about uh, some of those streaming services. And then maybe you could provide an idea or two of, of what cable TV could do, if there's anything they can do, if they're, if, or if this uh, decline is going to continue. I've got an idea of myself that I want to share with you. Uh, let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll continue the discussion with Amanda Lotz, who is a professor of media studies at the University of Michigan. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. We're speaking with Amanda Lotz, who is a professor of media studies at the University of Michigan and the author of We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It All. Amanda, welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. So uh, before the break, we you started talking a little bit about some of the streaming services that have really been on the incline whereas uh, cable seems to be on the decline. Um, Talk to us more about how you feel uh, these streaming services are going to continue to affect cable. And uh, maybe let's talk about ESPN first, and then we'll we'll talk about cable TV in general, some ideas of of what they're going to need to do to to try to get back on top, or if that's even possible. So let's start with uh, Netflix and Hulu and Sling. What do you see as the future of these streaming services? What I think we're seeing is competition in the marketplace for the first time. So the cable industry has been extremely uncompetitive because they're, in, for most subscribers, you have very little competition. So basically you have one cable provider available in your city and you have a satellite service. And what has happened over the years is that the cable channels – uh, required the same deal of uh, both 
cable providers and satellite providers. So uh, consumers really had no choice. You could either get a really big bundle and pay a whole bunch of money from your cable provider, or you could do the exact same thing from satellite. So there really wasn't a choice in service. And so what we're seeing now with the Internet distributed services is choice for the first time. For a long time, I think people have called for something called a la carte, uh, which is this idea that you'd be able to access just and pay for just particular channels and build your own package. Right. And the Internet distributed technology is is getting us closer and closer to that. So it's not going to be what I think a lot of people imagined a la carte might be back in the 90s. Um, but there is increasingly the possibility of developing those more finely tuned packages. Yeah, and you know, as a as a cable consumer myself, I'm kind of to the point where I look at my uh TV consumption and it's just it's just not there all that much and we're paying $65 a month and we're kind of the point where we feel like why are we letting these this cable company push us around <laughs> because mm-hmm. we don't even watch most of this content and you know I know that uh, channels like HBO are are just allowing you the opportunity to and, and through your cable provider too to just have HBO and not all the other channels and that's huge for you know channels like HBO that have these shows that people simply cannot wait to watch like Game of Thrones and uh so i think they're starting to see that people just aren't going to put up with it anymore right i think the big thing that's been holding change back is that television has been primarily an ad supported medium and ad when when television is ad supported you have i mean basically the economic transaction that's going on there is that the channels are creating programming to attract an audience and then that audience is being sold to advertisers and all of these new technologies that allow us to control when we watch and how we watch most of those aren't real great for advertisers and and the technology hasn't quite been there in order to take advantage of audiences viewing in that way, which is why we've seen services such as HBO and Showtime largely leading the way into these new forms of distribution because they are subscriber funded. They don't have to deal with advertisers at all. You're paying for that content. Um, And so really they have this incentive to try to make people as happy with the viewing experience as, as they can. We are now just in the last year, actually the last few months, we've seen announcements from AMC as a channel and just this week from FX that they are making a service available for you to access the content from those channels in that same kind of subscriber-based way. And so we're certainly going to look at paying more for those services than the amount that those channels have been receiving from cable service providers, but that has to do with uh, we're taking that ad support out of their their financial equation, and so they're seeking to make up that money in subscriber fee. You just made my day because two of my favorite TV shows come from AMC and and FX. It's Fargo and Better Call Saul. So I'm excited. (laughs) So, okay, now let's, let's get back to ESPN a little bit. Do you think that ESPN can change their strategy and get back on top? Is that possible? I think ESPN is in a tough position. And if you really think about what cable channels are, um, they're, they're middlemen. For the most part, what they've been doing is gathering and organizing content for viewers. And really what the Internet does that is challenging the old 
business model is that they're allowing the content creators, whether that's a film and television studio or a sports league, to interact more directly with the consumer. And so if a sports league like, like MLB uh, wants to develop the customer-facing infrastructure and avoid that middleman entirely, I, I have no doubt that their financial planners have identified how much money they would need to make um, off of a subscription and how many subscribers that they would need to have in order for a direct-to-consumer offer to be more valuable than the sports league licenses. And right now, the sports leagues are taking advantage of the fact that the television and, and cable channels have been willing to pay these long-term, really big licensing deals. And so that, that has given them some guaranteed income in a, a period of considerable change. And the downside of that is that it's really tough on ESPN. Right. That they had these forecasts of how much money they thought they'd be able to be making. They had no real sense that subscriber numbers could decrease uh, to the extent that they have just in this last year. And hence uh, the many, many layoffs that they've experienced. Right. That's really the only... Uh, cost that they can cut because many of these licenses go on in through the 2020s uh, and, and, you know, they are commitments that can't be changed. Yeah. Okay. Now let's just talk about cable TV in general. Now I've had this idea that, well, I'm sure they've thought of it before, but in my mind as a consumer, I'm thinking I would be so much more likely to remain loyal to a cable company if they would just get rid of that pesky phone part of the triple play offer that they have. I mean, first of all, I don't even know who still has a landline anymore. I do think that some cable companies are starting to offer a triple play with a a mobile contract instead of a landline. But why is it, do you think, that they're so uh, insistent that they hold on to that phone part of this contract? Obviously, I mean, obviously they want the money, but... Do you think that – why haven't they thought of that as a way to to uh, hold on to some of these customers? Well, I think the ones that are making a mobile play available, it has to do with them actually owning um, or having an arrangement with a mobile provider. So in order – the landline comes from the fact that they've already got all the technology there. Um, they are offering its voice over IP. They're offering the triple play because in their – they're wired into your home, they can, they can provide all that service. Most of the companies that are cable service providers do not own any um, inter- mobile phone infrastructure, and so that's a competing service. So, I'm sorry, is it a true landline or is it an Internet uh, line? In most cases, it is, it is an Internet line. It's voice over IP. Um, so it, it, that's what I'm talking to you on right now is a... a it seems to be a landline, but it is uh, an internet protocol um, that is sending the message. Okay. So, you know, cable TV now has all this competition with Netflix and Hulu and Sling and all these other providers that we've been talking about. Do you think cable TV will ever be the same? And if not, what is it that they need to change to at least continue to compete with all of these streaming services? So we need to back up and break down, again, the difference between those cable businesses. So the cable channels are being um, 
challenged by companies such as Netflix and others that are now creating content that is attracting our attention. So the cable channels, I'd say, like ESPN, are probably in the most danger. The cable service providers are actually in a great position. They have quietly transformed themselves into being Internet service providers. In fact, many of the companies that we might think of as cable companies now have more Internet subscribers than cable subscribers. So not only do they have more people paying for that service, but the margins are also better because they're really not paying for the content. So they're actually in a very good position as Internet service providers because as people do cut cable packages, and yes, they, they lose some money there, but they're, that probably means that your Internet data consumption is going to increase. And one thing that a number of the companies have, again, quietly done is change their billing procedures so that it is not actually an all-you-can-use Internet um, bundle that you're buying anymore, but that you have a cap. And so normal home Internet consumption right now, um, most people won't hit that cap, but some of the new technologies that are coming in, such as ultra 4K quality uh, video, that's a much bigger, that requires a lot more data, so that could start pushing people into using more and more data. So the, the cable, what we thought of as the cable companies are now actually the Internet service providers, and they're actually in a pretty good position for all of this. That's so interesting because I've noticed that my internet bill is almost as much as my cable bill. So, yeah, just like you said, they really are more of an internet provider than than cable providers. Well, Amanda Lotz, we appreciate your time here on the Matt Townsend Show. She is the author of We Now Disrupt This Broadcast, How Cable Transformed Television and the Internet Revolutionized It. She is also a professor of media studies at the University of Michigan. And her research focuses on U.S. television, specifically the industrial shifts since the end of the network era, and on representations of gender on television and in the media. And again, Amanda, we really appreciate your time. When we return, we'll continue the fun and continue the discussion here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show, and uh, joined here by Terry South and Cole Wissinger. I'm Jeff Simpson, covering for Dr. Matt. And earlier, Cole mentioned that uh, it was today is when ESPN is introducing the Ocho, and I commented that it made me hungry because I made me think of nachos. And Terry inevitably, you know, on the days that I'm hungriest. He'll come in with these food stories, and well, usually it's like a, a fair food. Well, at this moment. Yeah. I also have lists of ballpark food that we could still go through <sighs> because you go to the baseball, the Major League Baseball ballparks try to compete with each other to have the most absurd food you can possibly have. Oh, yeah. Well, you got to do something to rattle the cages and something crazy that will get people to check out this food and come to the ballpark. I don't know that anybody's going to the – actually, I take that back. Usually when I'm going to the ballpark, the thing that I'm looking forward to the most is the food. Really? Yeah. I like it when the food gets out there and runs during the seventh inning stretch. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the sausage races, yes. Or, yeah, and yeah, And in Pittsburgh, yeah. we have pierogi races. Yeah. Uh, no, but, yeah, the, the thing that I focus on at the, at the ballpark is the food 
and trying not to get hit in the face by a baseball. There's that too. Yes. The other the other time, of course, this time of year, they have a lot of state fairs. We've already talked about our opinions. Cole went feelings. to one while he was away. So Cole, you went to it was Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's our county fair, county not fair. a state fair. Right. Okay, um, but it's a pretty big deal. Right, from. absolutely. <laughs> it's where everyone comes from all around. The 4-H clubs have been raising those cattle all year, and they want to show them off. Exactly. Or pigs or sheep or whatever. And kids want to see them. Right. So is the county or the state fair more depressing? I don't, I don't know if depressing is the right word. That's more of your opinion. But you agreed with me when I made that I, there, assessment. There, there might be some depressing features. Okay. Mainly we talked about the uh, the inevitable hot tub tent that's trying to sell you a hot tub. Yes. Or, or, There's bath fitters sometimes that will yeah. try to like. There's just people just hawking things mm-hmm. and it turns into a swap meet. And it's like, well, is this what we're doing? And that's kind of how those people yeah. pay rent to be there type of thing. It's not just the kind of – so it's a money-making venture for the state yeah. fair. So uh, whatever. But that are, there are better things. Yeah, there's that. other features. There's – you know, you get rides, concerts, food, all this stuff. So The food is the, the, the highlight The food is though. usually what shows up because people make some crazy stuff. And it's always like something that's deep fat fried that's mm-hmm. some crazy thing. To eat. What did you see at your county fair out there? Deep fried anything. So deep fried Snickers, Twinkies, Oreos. Yeah. Those are your standard. Fair for, staples, for yeah. candy wise, but then there's also deep fried pickles, cauliflower, mm-hmm. and the fruity or the the vegetable-y kind of things. I would totally do cauliflower. More yeah. of your health conscious, mm-hmm. yeah, deep fat deep fried <laughs> food. Yeah. Exactly. Um, endless drinks as well. You can get a barrel mug that's about right. a quart size that you pay exorbitant amounts of money for sure. that you can come back and refill. You for get your type two diabetes more. at the fair. Yes. yes. Nice. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And then just general local grub. Uh, there we have pierogies are a big thing and strombolis, um, but those are all normal. Wasn't he in Pinocchio? Yes, okay. both of them. <laughs> and stromboli. At my what? fair, we have what's called dippy pizza. Okay, which is just deep fried like crust pizza crust. It's nothing on it, and then you sprinkle some Parmesan cheese, mm. dip it in marinara sauce, and it's. The cheapest thing there because it's literally just the dough and it's still about six bucks for like six little slices. Now, I'm oh, wow. guessing a three year old named that because that sounds like something that would be said around my house. Dippy pizza. Dippy pizza. We say circle crackers and potty. I mean, everybody says potty, but yeah. it's to the point now where my wife and I are saying that to each other like, oh, I just need to go potty real quick. Yeah, that's when you've crossed the line. You need to. <laughs> Change some discussions in your home. Um, let's see here. So at the Wisconsin State Fair, which is the article mm-hmm. I found here, they have these cream puffs, but they're the size of like, you know, you get your normal sort of like paper plate. Uh-huh. They're that big. Oh, They're not no. like little tiny ones. They're just massive. And they say you can either just like a sandwich pick them up or knife and fork or they people do like the Oreo thing where you take the top off and then you have just the cream. Yeah, I mean, just so many ways to they're, eat these. They're, they're I just, can't picture anyone at my fair using a knife and fork <laughs> yeah, for no. any food. They're just so big. Um, I'm going to do that now the next time I go. Let's see. What else do they so – that's, that's kind of their staple apparently in Wisconsin is the cream puff. Um, let's see. They also have uh, all things jerky. Really? Right. They have a jerky pavilion, apparently, of some sort. Huh. And there are alligator, kangaroo, ostrich, wild boar, python, and turtle. 
See now, those I would think are more expensive meats. Well, you, so not yeah. something you would typically see at the fair or but, Wisconsin in general. Did they have no. to import the alligator? Like, well, they're they're like prepackaged too. So uh. it's called Big Game Meat Snacks, Buffalo Bob's Big Game Meat Snacks, and so they have. Yeah, so you see there's the... So is it possible that they just contain like a very small amount of that particular protein? Anything's possible. But what do you think would be the best tasting of all those? Alligator, kangaroo, ostrich, wild boar, python, or turtle? Ooh. um, So I've had rattlesnake. If python's Mm. anything like that, it's... Probably pretty decent, but yeah. I want to try wild boar. Well, it'd just be that like sounds pork, exciting. right? Yeah. I would try alligator. Yeah, because that would be a way for me to get over my fear of alligators. Okay, reminding them who is on top of the food chain. Right. When they're prepackaged in a bag, yeah. it's Jeff. I am definitely on when top of that. When they are not prepackaged in a bag, when I'm like swimming near one, then yeah, I'm the lowest. And then the one that this uh, news report singled out was oh of course they have everything deep fried you got vegetables and just twinkies you know you're normal as we talked about before it's normal stuff across the nation it used to be weird when you took a twinkie and deep fried it now it's like if it's not there it's not really a state fair Mm -hmm. right well now they're doing they call it cricket nachos Hmm. as in the bugs yes Cricket nachos? Are they hmm, are they deep fried or uh, how do I have to eat no. them? So the sign that's up on this uh, display here, it says cricket nachos, tortilla chips topped with cheese, and crickets. And in parentheses it says, yes, they are real. Can I see the picture? Yeah, hold on a second. Okay. And then it says, uh, good source of protein. So they're trying to justify your it. purchase. And then it says, be proud to say, I eat bugs. Exactly. Yeah. I don't know that pride is the right thing. So I'll I'll describe it, then I'll show you the picture. Okay. You have the nachos. Mm -hmm. Then you put your nacho cheese on it. I'm there so far. Then you sprinkle crickets. That's where you lose me. The bottom picture there. Oh, no. (laughs) That's like... A health inspector has come into a gas station and has discovered that the nachos are no good. There is a health violation So now you wonder how they discovered that that could be eaten. Exactly. Their food truck probably just had crickets. That's not bad. Yeah, someone had to receive a major fine and then they realized, wait a minute, how can we turn this into a good thing? So yeah, it's – Wow. I saw that last night and I'm like, well – if you turn the cricket, I don't know, you could use them in many different ways, but but just dropping the bugs on top of the you know chips isn't really the best way to – and they're not even like covered up. You know, I mean, you could eat anything with ketchup on it. I'm pretty convinced with that. Nacho cheese, probably the same, maybe. Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. I don't know if, they, I mean, if it would help the – yeah, that it, I'll put the picture on Twitter. It's pretty uh, interesting to see just – Crickets sitting on top of nachos. <laughs> if you're just returning from the bathroom, this is the Matt Townsend Show. And yes, we have been talking about cricket nachos, part of the Wisconsin State Fair. But does a does a jerky pavilion sound interesting? Like someplace you may want to go and peruse and see what actually is in there. Absolutely. I would be – let's just say I'd be more likely to go into that pavilion than the spa pavilion. Okay. Or the cricket pavilion? Definitely. Okay.
Definitely. Anyway, the Matt Townsend Show is the best place to get your fair food news. And we will continue to bring you such news. I think we're even going to be talking about stadium food later on in the Matt Townsend Show. We're here on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. And when we return, we'll continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, who's away for the day, as well as uh, Terry South is here and Cole Wissinger. We've got the whole group here, minus Matt Townsend, of course. And uh, we've really got a great show. Today, of course, is, oh, uh, we're calling it the Ocho, or that's what ESPN is calling it. But it's also Bowling Day. That is the sound of Dr. Matt Townsend bowling. Gutter ball. Gutter ball. Nothing more humiliating than the gutter ball. And uh, having to face all your friends after that. Well, it's a little more humiliating to just play with the bumpers so you don't get the gutter ball than just being a man about it Is and it though? bowling the proper gutter ball. But if everybody's using the gutter ball, eh. that's fine. But the gutter ball, there's nothing. Actually, I take it back. The only thing that's worse than getting the gutter ball is getting a gutter ball with the bumpers up. There you go. That's just. That's the worst. Jeff there's knows no, from experience. There's no coming back from that. Uh, actually, I don't know from experience because as uh, you may have, may recall on the show earlier, I mentioned that I bowled a 210. Which I bowled you take great pride in for some reason. Six strikes in a row. That's two turkeys, by the way. The double turkey. Mm. Every My goal for every single Thanksgiving. I could go for a couple of turkeys right now. Mm-hmm. Sounds good to me. And it is, also, it is also Happiness Happens Day, founded in 1999 under the name of Admit Your Happy Day by the Secret Society of Happy People. Happiness <laughs> or uh, – yeah, I'm not going to go there. Anyway, Happiness Happens Day aims to spread the joy of being happy and to persuade people to look on the brighter side of life. I think they changed it once they realized that maybe admit you're happy was a little uh, pessimistic. No, it's a little forcible, I guess. Uh. You're going to be happy. Admit you're happy. Admit it. Happiness happens day. So hopefully you can find something to be happy about today and each and every day, really. We're also going to be speaking about on the program uh, what is – the most extreme thing you've ever done to get out of trouble. I don't want you to answer just yet, but maybe we can – I want you to think about that so that you've got that question in your mind so that when I ask it again, you'll have a response for something extreme that you did to get out of trouble. Well, there's a lady, uh, a Chinese woman, who went so far as to change her appearance. She took medical – Measures to change her appearance to get out of trouble. 
So we'll talk more about that in just a minute here. But first, let's talk to Terry South, who's going to be giving us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. A lawsuit against two psychologists who helped design the CIA's torture program will go to trial. U.S. District Court Judge Justin Quackenbush uh, ruled Monday in Spokane, Washington. The American Civil Liberties Union is suing the psychologists James Mitchell and John Bruce Jensen on behalf of two CIA detainees and the family of a third detainee who froze to death in a CIA prison. The men who were taken into CIA custody in the war on terror were physically assaulted, subjected to extreme temperatures, and chained in painful stress positions that kept them awake for days on end. This according to the ACLU. The trial begins September 5th. So this, this should be the first time that the CIA has to kind of answer some questions wow. about the, ter- the, what do they call it, the Enhanced Interrogation Program. Huh. That's a so, nice way of putting it, we'll, I guess. We'll see how that, that stands up to the uh, to the courts. Authorities in South Carolina say a beginning driver and her passenger uh, got out just after, just in time after she got stuck trying to turn around on a railroad crossing. Oh. We, we had a story earlier, I think this week or late last week, of a car that got flipped yes. over on its lid. Yeah. And then they got out just in time as the train took the car. I guess the train the train missed the car barely. It wasn't quite on the tracks, but it was kind of scary yeah. for them. This car stuck right across the tracks. They uh, couldn't, they're trying to do a U-turn and got stuck. <laughs> and uh, they got out just in time. An Amtrak train carrying 400 passengers sliced the car in two. And the wreckage caught fire and was dragged down the tracks early Sunday morning. No one was seriously injured, though. One train passenger was hospitalized with an asthma attack. Oh, dear. The but driver- it didn't derail or anything. No, like no, no. Okay, the good, driver good. in her 20s faces misdemeanor charges of driving under the influence and violating <laughs> a beginner's permit. According to a statement from the city, the damage to the train will cost $100,000 to fix. The passenger in the car does not face charges. Driver does. And uh, I was more concerned what, what kind of car it was, because it just said a car. Oh, yeah. Was this a car, an SUV, a truck? It was a Chevy Impala. Oh, no. Yeah, that's not the, the smallest car, but it's Uh-oh. not the biggest thing either. But it cut the thing in half, and the pictures showed it was, there were so two you, pieces of the car. How You're did telling... the rumor about a penny being able to derail a train yeah. get any traction when a Chevy Impala can? The Chevy Impala didn't do it, so you can do pennies all you want. Mm-hmm. You're telling me there was alcohol involved in this it just says impaired it does not wow. tell you what they were impaired by okay could be their cell phone maybe they had like a pencil pencil through their hand could or something. be who knows but yeah the car got That's cut in impaled half. Oh, not right. impaired yeah there we go there we go there we go yeah. uh hackers demanding millions of dollars in ransom have released more stolen hbo files just a week after threatening the pay tv channel with a drop of Multiple unreleased shows and scripts online. The latest uh, data dump, they're saying, includes scripts for this season's first four episodes of Game of Thrones, as well as the script for the unreleased fifth episode. So if you want some spoilers, that could be out there. Accompanying the data dump is a ransom demand for $6 million in bitcoins and the message HBO is falling. The hackers identified themselves only as Mr. Smith and also realized, uh, released internal documents including financial balance sheets, employment agreements, and what they say is a month's worth of emails from the account of Leslie Cohen, HBO's vice president for film programming. Whoa. See, that's a big deal because, you know, if it was a show that people didn't really care about or a Netflix show where you can't really see how many people are watching it so you don't really know. Hmm. But HBO, Game of Thrones, that gets 10-plus million viewers every episode. So that's a big deal. A lot of people, a lot of money. And uh, the internal documents are interesting because that's how they 
discuss how we pay for things, how we pay people, what right. we think of individuals, the, the private conversations. Uh, Sony had a similar problem a couple of years ago. It's how we know that Sony doesn't like Adam Sandler mm-hmm. and how Adam Sandler just tries to get all his friends' jobs. That's pretty much what Adam Sandler did at yeah. Sony. And then they put out you know low-quality, low-budget movies that made yeah. money for Sony. He's still doing that, you know, even if it's not a Sony picture. So it's just interesting that the the stuff that came out of that, and it's 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 fun, I guess, on an individual level as you're looking at it, and like, oh, so much interesting stuff. But at yeah. the same time, it's bad because then how does business happen if you can't have an open conversation? Yeah. So you know, I'm not. Oh, go ahead, Cole. What if our BYU radio internal documents got released? We'd find out what Dr. Matt really thinks about mm. each You know, I'm not going to lie. If I had a friend that was super wealthy and wanted to pay me to be in a movie and go vacation in Hawaii, mm. I would take him up on it. Probably. Okay. Probably. Right. I'd have, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even think about it, actually. Sounds like a stretch, but okay. <laughs> Finally, NASA is extremely interested in building a true asteroid defense network that could spring into action as soon as a threat is detected, destroying or diverting a space rock before it can do any serious damage here on Earth. The actual development of of a protection system is still in its infancy, with many proposed plans for dealing with troublesome asteroids, but no real-world testing to back any of them up. But that won't stop NASA from testing its detection capabilities during an upcoming near-Earth asteroid flyby in October. Hmm. October twelfth to be the fa- be uh, specific. The asteroid is named twenty twelve TC four. Whoa! They don't really have a lot of unique names. They're yeah. just numbers and codes and stuff. So it's hmm. not really as interesting. But TC four sounds doesn't even sound menacing at all. But it could be. It says it's coming incredibly close to our planet. This would be on October twelfth. At its nearest point, the rock is expected to be as close as four thousand two hundred miles from our planet. Compared that with the moon's orbit around 240,000 miles away. Scary. So 4,000 miles away. And uh, so you're looking at this rock flying by. So they're going to they're, they're, they're gonna kick their asteroid detecting capabilities yeah. into high gear. And they're going to – they're using it as a guinea pig, which will require the cooperation of many scientists and obser- observation acting – excuse me, observatories acting in concert to establish the asteroid's exact path. So the whole program right now – is just to look at the asteroid and predict where it's going and see if they're accurate with their prediction. I, I will agree with you. They need to do something about that name. My vote is for Rocky McRockface. There you go. They, they should, should open o- it up. Open it to the public. That yeah. always ends up well. Yeah. It says, this is a team that effort that involves more than a dozen observatories, universities, and labs across the globe so we can collectively learn the strengths and limitations of our near-Earth object observation capabilities, says the head of the whatever program this is. The goal of the TC4 campaign is to recover, track, and characterize the comet hmm. or the asteroid, whatever it's called. They could, uh, they could sick... Pluto on it. No, the, he's the, surly. The problem I have with all this is there's no plan for destruction. Yeah, we're just looking at this thing. Let's just get out some popcorn and we watch have it. no ability to do anything about the asteroid <laughs> if it's actually coming at us. Yeah, at this point we're simply going to look at it and go, I think it's going here. Oh look, it didn't go there. Oh, I guess we did it wrong, or we did it right, depending on the outcome, right? That's but scary. There's, there's no. Like, there's a show on CBS, I can't even remember the name of it now, Salvation, I think, and it's all about an asteroid is coming right at Earth, hmm. and the government knows about it, and they have some secret plans they're trying to put together, like they're moving all the nation's uh, 
nuclear missiles to Florida. And everyone's like, wait a second. Why are you moving? Oh, it's just, and they're like, it's just common inventory rotation. Really? They're all moving. Everything <laughs> from Montana is moving to Florida. What are you doing? Nothing. Don't worry about it. You know, that kind of thing. Huh. So the show has its faults, but they're trying to build uh, a device that will go up, hit the asteroid, and kind of push it off course so it'll just fly on by. Is the device named Bruce Willis? No, no, okay. not at all. They're not doing it that way. Though that right. would be a, an idea. Let's go up there and blow it up. Let's but. get some oil drillers, a bunch of non-scientists uh-huh. who know nothing about asteroids, yep. and we'll send them up there, and uh, they'll take care of the problem. Right, and there'll be a good soundtrack. It'll be a great, great show. <laughs> Aerosmith. You can't go wrong with Aerosmith. No, I will. But say I that. just I found it disturbing that. Uh, you know, they're, the, the, the article's making it sound really intense, and they're just going to stare at it. Hmm. Draw a line. And go, whoops, did we get it right? And then there's no plan for destruction. Like, blow something up. Well, yeah, blow something up when or you're talking let about us name it. planetary defense, something's got to blow up, or there needs to be a laser at least. Well, maybe this is something that— uh, See? It makes it more intense. Maybe this is something our, our guardian of the galaxy can— no, that was that kid from yesterday from NASA. That job again was dealing with sending germs from Earth to space and then <gasps> stopping germs from space That's coming it. to Earth. We infect it. Let's infect the asteroid with a virus. It's a rock. It doesn't have like. Mm-hmm. It's a, doesn't a rock have spores? We can't. Yeah, but they're going to make us sick, not it. Mm. We can't infect a rock. Come on. It worked in Independence Day. Well, that was aliens. Maybe it's allergic to water. Their their shell was kind of like a rock. Well, I guess. Just I wish space was more advanced than it is. It's basically the whole point of that. Well, I think what we learned is all we need to do is send either Bruce Willis or Jeff Goldblum into space. Does Jeff Goldblum need to be piloted by Will Smith or is that optional? Uh, He wasn't piloted by Will Smith in the the unwatchable sequel, Insurgents. I fell asleep. I'm sorry if I offended someone. I don't know if I saw the end of that. Yeah. It was pretty bad. But you got some sleep out of it. Okay, so I want to know, what's something that either one of you have done to, an extreme measure that you've taken to get out of trouble? You guys are squeaky clean, huh? Well, no, I mean, I've I've gotten in (laughs) trouble, but nothing interesting to get out of trouble. I I mean, when I'm younger, there was some, you know failing lies that I'd said that really weren't well thought out and easily sure saw, you know, people saw through them and I was yeah. in trouble. So it's like, eh, not, nothing, nothing extreme. So I know this is not exactly an answer to what I just asked, but there was a girl that really liked me, wanted to go out with me on a date and I wasn't old enough to go on a date. So instead of telling her that I just ran away. She was approaching me, and I turned and ran away from her. And you would think, you know, that's maybe your answer, that maybe this guy isn't interested, doesn't want to go out with me. But no, she ran after me. She ran after me, and uh, I hid in the bushes. She ran up to the bushes and then proceeded to ask me, will you go out with me? Hmm. To which you said yes. To which I said, uh, one of the dumbest things I could have said, I would if I could, but I can't, so I won't. I'm sure she wasn't (laughs) hurt at all by that. Oh, no, no. She was pretty upset. I don't know that we talked much after that. 
Anyway, well, here's a woman who uh, did something rather extreme to get out of trouble. A 59-year-old woman from central China transformed her appearance through plastic surgery in order to avoid $3.71 million of personal debts. In a case highlighting the challenges facing China as it tries to establish a credit society, police officers uh, were reported to be astonished after apprehending the woman who fled after a court in Wuhan ordered her to pay off her debt. The woman also confessed to using other people's identity cards to travel across the country by train. She financed her plastic surgery using borrowed bank cards. Authorities across China are also exploring new ways to crack down on those who do not pay debts. According to state media, one court in eastern China was drawn up a blacklist of defaulters. Anyone who telephones an individual on the blacklist will first be forced to listen to a pre-recorded message saying, please urge this person to fulfill their legal obligations. So this kind of reminded me of the film Face Off. You know, she changed her appearance to get out of this debt. Didn't work, though. Hmm. It worked in the movie Face Off. Those two were able to fool everybody, their best friends, even though I don't understand how changing a face with somebody who's like twice the size as you will fool anyone because then there's still, you know, the body fat and all that to be taken into account. It was a movie, Jeff. It was. I Well, I don't want to say how much I enjoyed it on the air, but stars Nicolas Cage and John Travolta. Face off. Anyway, uh, when we return, we're going to be talking about something completely different, as you might hear on Monty Python. And now for something completely different. Five ways marriage is harder in 2017 and what you can do about it. We're going to be speaking with Jordan Johnson who is a licensed marriage and family therapist and clinical member of the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. When we return, this is The Matt Townsend Show. You know, it's no secret that marriage looks a lot different today than it has in years past. And uh, change is inevitable. And as time progresses, each new generation of married couples has a fresh set of distinct challenges and problems to navigate. And with the increasing societal acceptance of cohabitation, out-of-wedlock births, and single parenting, the institution of marriage has become less important in society's eyes. And we're honored to speak with Jordan Johnson here this morning, who is he's a licensed marriage and family therapist and clinical clinical member of the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. And uh, he's worked a lot in D.C. And I'm interested to hear more about your experience and and what you what light you can shed on this interesting topic. Jordan, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. I appreciate it. Yeah, and again, I, I'm I'm sure Matt Townsend will want to have you back on the show when he's when he's here because what you're doing is is very similar to what he's been doing. So um, you were mentioned in this article about five ways marriage is harder in 2017, 
And if you take a look at the numbers, it, it kind of suggests that maybe it's it's I don't know if it means that people are having a harder time getting married or if it's just a matter of priorities. Why? Let's start with that, with priorities. Why do you feel like if it is a question of priorities, why do you feel like it's less of a priority for people to be married? That's a great question. I mean, I think today in today's day and age, there, there's the two two aspects of it, like you mentioned, that there's first it's, you know, people are having a harder time getting married. And then once they're getting married, there's a whole slew of, of challenges that come along with that. Yeah. Where, you know, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit with, you know, communication as well as, you know, just the social media aspect of that. But I think in today's day and age, you know, just the American dream is kind of shifting. You know, it's it's or it's le- at least, you know, getting prolonged or, you know, pushed out further. And so it's an interesting change and it's never been this way before, you know, and, and since since we've been tracking the statistics, it's it's never been this high since, you know. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Do you think is there a danger from putting off marriage until because if you again, if you look at the numbers, people are getting married later and later, some 29, 30. What's the danger in, in putting off marriage that long? Yeah. I, and I, I tell people this all the time who, who interview or ask about this. I, I really feel strongly that, that the put on, putting off of marriage is in some ways good for the individual mm-hmm. but bad for the marriage. Hmm. Where you find that people are finding personal development. They're having opportunities to go travel the world to really uh, improve their career or to you know develop social networks with people that they – wouldn't be meeting before, but it's kind of making us a little bit more stuck in our ways. Or Absolutely, right? yeah. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. So um, obviously views of marriage and, and living with each other out of wedlock, it's, it's changed over the years. Yeah. I mean, there used to be so much, there was a, a major stigma to having children out of wedlock mm-hmm. or living together when you're not yeah. married. Yeah. So why do you think that has changed a little bit and do you think do you think there's a danger to our views on how we become lax in in this area do you think there's a danger in that as well You know it's a good question you know some people might argue both sides of the coin mm-hmm. right that people are getting more experienced they're knowing what they're getting into but I also think that uh you know just even the statistics show that this is a major trend in 1960 you know, there's only about 400,000, you know, couples that reported cohabitation. And in 2005, it's 4.8 million. Whoa. You know? And so it's a, it's a major trend. And, you know, studies, you're going to find studies on both sides of it saying, you know, it's better for the relationship for people to try it out in a sense. And, you know, but as a therapist who works with couples on a daily basis, I, th- I think there's I think there's a really there's a key component to commitment and to yeah. people who know that they're in it and they are able to make that uh, <clears throat> make that plunge and also commit to their partner because there's more you know marital, marital satisfaction and they're kind of more secure in their marriage and that's what really drives people to to feel positive about their relationship. Yeah, I think you bring up a good point too. I think you're going to get a myriad of responses depending on who you talk to because totally. I mean this is even without bringing religion into the right. the conversation, exactly. you know. Um so what do you think? I mean, you mentioned that it could be dangerous getting married a little later because at least personality wise or goal wise you're you're so set in your ways mm-hmm. that it's harder to be one for lack of a better term uh as a as a couple 
if you're getting married later. What are what are some of the benefits other than, you know, not being so set in your ways? What are some of the other benefits of getting married at an earlier age? Yeah, I just definitely say first off with with the compatibility part of you really have that opportunity to mold and to mm-hmm. form your relationship and to learn those new things that, you know, where if you're on your own, you're you're deciding what foods you like. You're deciding what styles of movies you like. You're deciding, you know, what kind of career you want to pursue, what housing options you like. And, you know, when you're when you're married, though, you're you really have that opportunity to form who what's our identity as a couple. Yeah. Um, which has, you know, like we've talked about, can be a double edged sword. Um, but I think for relationships that it has it has a positive impact if people can do that earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now let's talk a little bit more about what you mentioned earlier about first getting into marriage and then staying in that marriage. Yeah. Let's talk about that. Sure. Sure. I mean, I think that there today, I mean, like we, we, we've looked at the statistics and the, the latest ones, you know, in the article that I think that they, they showed that it was about, you know, the first, the time at first marriage for men is about 29 and a half. Yeah. And it's never been that high. Um, and then for women, it's 27 and a half. And that is just, it's just climbed specifically in the past 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that is creating, a, you know, a, a really, it creates difficulties because people are, I mean, you, you look at the housing market, they're, they're looking at, um, I was reading in, uh, the National Association of Home Builders just came out with a, an article on, um, their plans for, you know, what kinds of housing are we going to be providing? Mm-hmm. If people are marrying later, are they going to go into more co-living opportunities? Are they going to go into more townhomes? Are they looking for a yard? Are they, you know, and it's just changing. Yeah. It's interesting because you hear a lot of the arguments from people who are marrying later that, well, I need to make sure that I'm financially secure. I need right. to make sure that I have X, Y, and Z lined up perfectly. And yeah, I think about my own marriage and some of the most uh, – Some of the greatest experiences for my marriage have been from when we've had to work through a very difficult issue together and how much – how grateful I've been that I've actually had somebody there that can help me get through that instead of me trying to get through it on my own. Totally. Yeah. Totally. That shared experience of – you know, it's kind of like traveling. You know, when you're traveling on your own, it's nice. But when you have somebody there next to you to share it, it's a whole other experience. It's – yeah, it's, it really it really augments your experience. I think it also uh, you have somebody to help anchor your experiences to, um, not only in just the experiences there, but you have that bond between that person, and so you can always look into their eyes and see, hey, we did this together. And like you said, you know, going through challenges, and you have that support. Yeah, I like that. Let's do this, Jordan. Let's let's take a break. When we return, I want to talk a little bit about social media and also some of the struggles and challenges that couples, regardless of their age, are going through today and what we can do to help solve those problems when we return. This is the Matt, the Matt Townsend Show, and we're speaking with Jordan Johnson, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist and clinical member of the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. You're listening to the Matt Townsend Show here on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show here on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. We're speaking with Jordan Johnson, who is a licensed marriage and family therapist. And uh, Jordan, I'm interested to know, you've, I mean, you've worked with a lot of people that are having communication issues and infidelity issues and, and sex addiction. What, are, what have been some of the most rewarding experiences that you've had in, in all the, the great experiences that you've had? Yeah. I, you know, being a therapist is, is a privilege. It's really an honor, I mean, because you're, you're going on a ride with, with couples or individuals and, the, and these people who are coming in at their, the deepest and darkest times of their life. You know, if they've made it into your office, it's because it's they're on the brink of, you know, of disaster. Yeah. And so um, it's really an honor to be in there and to, and to just be along the ride, specifically with couples who, who it's their first time. I think there's a lot of people who are hesitant to to come in because they're scared. They think that, you know, you know, if, if we go to counseling, what does that mean about our relationship? You know, what yeah. do we tell our family members? What do we, you know, and so it's just kind of a, it can be stigmat, you know, have, have a stigma with it. But. Yeah. Seems like a very rewarding and uh, satisfying profession to just know that you've made a difference in somebody's life and you've given them hope again when a lot of people just feel like there's none left. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that can happen. Wow. Okay. So obviously, you know, getting, we talked a little bit about this, but getting married at a later age can present its own set of problems. But just in general, there are problems that people experience uh, in marriage and maybe even more so today than in an earlier age. You think about, for example, social media. You, you just picture a couple sitting on the on the bed together where they're – and it used to be maybe the wife was looking at a magazine, the husband was looking at a magazine or a book. Now you've got husband and wife on their phones flipping through Facebook. What kind of problems does social media pose in a marriage these days? Yeah, social media, you know, again, going back to the double-edged sword, I think it's it's really an opportunity for people to connect in some ways, but it's also a connection killer in other ways. Yeah. And so you have people who, you know, are, are able to meet people, whether it's online dating or other opportunities uh, like that, that you, you stay in contact. I mean, a husband goes to work or a wife goes to work and they're, and they're texting their, their spouse and, you know, that, that wasn't possible during the workday, you know, 20, 40 years ago, whereas today you can stay in, in touch. But when you come home, it's almost as if we may have lost that art of how do we interact and how do we communicate and to, to do the face-to-face thing, which yeah. is it's a whole other talent. Right? And I mean, to a certain extent, you can kind of understand why it happens, you know, you... I'm not saying this is the example uh, in everybody's case, but in my case, you know, my wife is at home. She, uh, her job is is a homemaker mm-hmm. and taking care of the kids, right. which is so much more difficult than anything I do <laughs> throughout the day. And she's she's tired at the end of the day, so right. I wouldn't. You, you might not blame her for getting on Facebook or just taking time to read her email, you know, instead of leaning over and, and talking to me. Same thing for me. I'm I'm tired of doing the things that you know are not as tiring as what my wife does. I <laughs> right. want to make that clear again, but maybe I'm sitting Brownie down. Right there. Yeah, like <laughs> maybe I'm sitting down and just vegging out in front of the TV. You know, so mm-hmm. to a certain extent, you can understand that. But yeah, it does seem like there are many more ways to just not be involved with your spouse or your partner on a more personal level because of some of these things that you know, like social media and. 
Wow. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because I'd say that's one of the most common things that people come in for is they're saying, you know, I come home at the end of the day and what he wants to do is he wants to go jump right on ESPN or I come home at the end of the day and she's just exhausted from taking care of the kids and what she wants is me to step in. And, and not that that's something that's completely, you know, abnormal or that hasn't been that way in the past. But in today's day and age, our attention it can be taken in so many places. Yeah. Whereas before you'd come home and it was, you're just face to face with your kids, with your family or you're with your, your spouse. And today it's, you know, I'm getting bombarded with either work emails, you know, when you're coming home or it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or wherever that is. And you, um, you really are missing out on that quality face-to-face connection time, yeah. which is so healing. And that's, that's the recharging things, right? For, for spouses who have been at home all day or, you know, vice versa, you know, a husband wants to come home or a wife wants to come home and they want to connect and they want to do something different when the, what their job was. And, and we're there on Facebook, we're watching Netflix next to each other and we're, you know, we're coexisting, but we're not connecting. Yeah. And that's, that can be an issue. So I want to ask you this because I, just to give you an example, I was at the park with my family yesterday and we've had family in town for about a month. So we're kind of, we're kind of burnt out. Not that we don't love our family. Obviously we do, but we just need to have some of that alone time. And I found myself being outdoors, which is not something we do a whole lot. And, you know, in the mountains, it's just this beautiful park. And normally I would feel great about this and want to be there, but I just wasn't feeling it. And I found myself really having to push myself to get out of my right. my, my lawn chair and go play with my kids and to, to talk to my relatives. Do you, do you feel like there are times in our marriages where we, we just have to pick ourselves up and do that? And then are there also times where we need to just be alone? How do we find a good balance between the two? That's a great question. That's really, And I think so many people are grappling with that, right, with the quality versus quantity of time and yeah. how do you spread yourself thin so much. It's, it's just – it's a really tricky thing. I think one of the things that I'll tell couples and I'll really try to encourage them to do as I work with them is, is to have that – you know, there are three things each week that I would recommend. The first is to have, you know, a family night, something where you're dedicated to the whole group. The second is to have a date night, you know, where you're investing in your relationship. Now, are you saying once a week? Once a week, Okay, yes. I'm going to make my wife listen to this. <laughs> once a week. And each each week, uh, it switches the partner, right? So one week, it's your wife who plans it. And next week, it's you. So you can't just Ooh. say we're going to watch Netflix, you know, That's every good. week because – you got to switch it up. But then after that, the most important one that I think that people are missing out on is what I like to call a relationship inventory. And this I'll recommend for for couples at the you know at the end of the week or at the start of the next week to have just one hour where you're able to you know sit and have pillow talk with your wife and to say, "Hey honey, is there something that's come up this week that's bothered you?" You know, this is kind of the catch-all. We know that at this point in the week we're going to be able to address anything that's gone unnoticed or did you notice that Timmy had a really hard time at school you know what do we want to do with this yeah because couples just aren't having that bonding time you know where you're talking about difficult issues or important issues but at the same time you know sharing experiences together yeah and if they don't feel like they can talk to you then they might start looking elsewhere to talk to other people which can be dangerous that is dangerous it's a common one so I want to hear from you what because it seems like another problem that couples face, and I think we sometimes get caught in this, mainly me, 
but uh, just you're alone, Jeff. I'm just, yeah, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, I mean in, in my relationship, I'm probably more guilty of this. Is is what I'm saying? Okay. Um, just kind of understanding what a date is, because for a lot of people, they think, oh, we we can't really go on on that many dates because we don't have the money, or mm-hmm. we can't find a babysitter. What can a date look like if it's if it's not uh, the typical, we're paying a babysitter, we're going out, we're going to a movie or a dinner. What else can a date look like? Yeah. So for me, the, the key part of a date is having connection time. So anything that you're spending time where you both are investing in each other, you're not investing in your phone, you're not investing in work or whatever, or even the kids. And so it's whether it be a walk, you know, you literally could go for a walk for 15 minutes and feel more rejuvenated, you know, in your day because you had an opportunity to connect with your wife uh, and vice versa, as opposed to planning out, you know, extravagant event where you're going to Lagoon or some some theme park for the whole day just to, right. you know, it's it's about the quality and not necessarily just the quantity. So it could be in the neighborhood. It could be around the house even. I mean, after the kids go to bed. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean what, when was the last time you sat out, you know, on the porch and, and looked at the stars and just had a conversation about... What interests you? You know. Well, I'm trying to think of the last time I could be awake long enough for the stars to come out. No, but I know what you mean. I was recently out on our back porch, and it was delightful. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. So um, family night, date night, inventory, at least one hour, um, every, something we need to do every week with our spouse or our partner. You're investing in your relationship. You want that insurance so to make sure that you're not going to end up in my office, right? <laughs> but if you do, it's okay because we all need a little help from time to time. That's interesting. So in a way, you're kind of like a, a police officer. You're glad we're glad that you're there, but we hope to not have to see you or to be to be with you when you're working. Cl- couples, yeah. <laughs> it's so funny at the start of the session. You know, they say, "Well, how long is this going to last?" And I and I look them dead in the eye and I say, Ooh. "Listen, this I, I understand that this is a financial burden and this is important, but I want you to know I'm in I'm in one of the few professions where my job." is to try to get you out of this office as quick as possible. Yeah. So I want you to know that I'm going to work to try to do that, and my job is not to have you here forever. Yeah. So, okay, clearly a problem in, that people are having is social media, maybe the lack of communication. You talked a little bit about making sure that you speak with your, your spouse. And then another thing that you that we mentioned during the break is that people are entering these marriages, regardless of what the age is, maybe they're entering a marriage with more baggage. Yeah, yeah. You know, like we talked about the double-edged sword, going back to that, that there's – there, as we said, that there, it can be better for the individual, your experiences, you know, your your career path, all the different things that are augmented by, um, you know, by being able to focus on that instead of a relationship or a marriage. But at the same time, with more experiences comes more negative experiences, right? Bad relationships or, you know, times where your heart's broken or where you have – you know, a number of things that could happen to you as opposed to somebody who gets married at 21, 25, you know, where it had been before that they they have that opportunity to gel and to mold together and to go through those experiences together, which can be bonding times where, you know, somebody else might not have that on their own. So just kind of in closing here, what are some things that we can do today? Because we talked about obviously getting into the marriage as the goal and maybe not waiting so long. (laughs) Uh, But then also, obviously... If you're going to get married, you want to stay married. Yeah. So what is something that couples can do today to make sure that they're giving their relationship, uh, making it a priority again? Yeah, yeah. 
it's key. That's a key thing. I love what you said. It's making it a priority. And I'd say the number one piece of advice is is one is I gave you two pieces at least. One is is that give your partner the benefit of the doubt. They're on your team. You know, look at them as a partner and not as somebody who's, you know, an opponent or somebody that you know you're trying to work with and or it's really hard. Look at them as a teammate and to give them the benefit of the doubt when things happen. Um, and phrase your your experiences that way. And second is is live as if you have arrived. Right. A lot of times we think that, oh, when I get that job, when I get married or when we have right. enough money or we have a house, nothing's stopping you right now from living as if, you, if you've as if you've arrived. And so it just hmm. really shifts your perspective is into I'm living in the moment. I'm cherishing these experiences. Um, does that make sense? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's great advice. Yeah. Act, it's, it's kind of a, a, a mindset change. Mm-hmm. That's great. Totally. Well, Jordan Johnson, we really appreciate you coming in here on the show today. And again, we'll we'll have Matt Townsend call you back here, and we'll we'll get you on again. Oh, thanks. Because we've enjoyed talking to you about getting married and then making sure that we stay married. His name is Jordan Johnson, and he is a licensed marriage and family therapist. And uh, again, we'll have Matt Townsend call you back so you can. Share more advice, more tips with us, and that's what we strive to do here on the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, It's BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Joined here with uh, Cole Wissinger, who is running the board and is our color commentator as well. You're filling in for Matt. I'm filling in for you. That's Everything's right. has got to get done. Yeah, and he's going to be back with us on Friday, including our third hour of the show, which will be screen cleaning, which Yay. you can hear every Friday at 9 a.m. Mountain Time, 11 a.m. Eastern here on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. And I'm super excited for that show, by the way, because we're going to be speaking with Neil Harmon, who is the CEO of VidAngel. And uh, if you're not familiar with VidAngel, you're definitely going to want to listen in on that because it's a company that is interested in helping your family view content that is filtered and appropriate for all ages and where you can actually pick and choose what you want to see in an episode of a television show, a comedy special, or even a movie. So we're super excited about that. And I'm hoping to give him a list of shows and movies that he can create some filters for. Because I have a lot of TV shows and movies to watch. Unfortunately, no time to watch them. Anyway, we continue to celebrate Bowling Day and Happiness Happens Day and I'm I'm guessing that this the subject of this next story is not bowling and is probably not happy at the moment because US Marshals uh, found a New Hampshire fugitive of the week tanning in a family member's backyard in Massachusetts and they of course arrested her The U.S. Marshals Fugitive Task Force featured 35-year-old Amy Beth Tremblay in local media in New Hampshire on July 12th, and an arrest warrant had been issued for her in March on bail violations following a drug conspiracy charge. 
The task force said Wednesday that tipsters reported seeing Tremblay sunning herself in a yard. They showed up and arrested her. And in this case, bad girls, bad girls. Anyway, how freaky would that be? You're sitting in the tanning salon. You've got either the cucumbers on your eyes or those little swim goggles. And uh, somebody shows up and arrests you. Oh, that would be awkward. The worst end to a relaxation. Have you ever been tanning? No. <laughs> and, 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 well, at least you wouldn't admit it, right? I came back with a little sun. I was out in the Utah desert this weekend. And really? got burned. Does that count as tanning? I got a little burned changing the sprinkler heads in my front yard. Uh, I did it once when I was a teenager and was going on a houseboat trip. <laughs> so... Yeah, not the. It's probably it's not for me. What about the oil so. stuff that you put on? Just makes you look golden brown without actually attaining any kind of permanent tan. I've I've never done that actually, mm-hmm. and I've been to a tanning bed once, but that's it. I just want people to accept me for who I am. There you go, and you're great as who you are, Jeffrey. Thank you. That was my key for Sutherland. Thank you, by the way. It's kind of a whisper growl. Thank you. Anyway, uh, here's another story. Uh, This is kind of my nightmare, actually. An Ohio woman called 911 in a panic with ample reason. A five and a half foot long boa constrictor she had rescued a day earlier had wrapped itself around her neck, was biting her face and wouldn't let go. Oh, no. Yeah. Please hurry, the frightened woman told the dispatcher. He's biting my nose. The dispatcher sent firefighters and police to the woman's house. Rescuers arrived within minutes and found the woman lying in the bloodied driveway of her home. This this is horrible. Do you read these stories before we uh, start talking about them, Jeffrey? Why? Why? You don't don't think I read it before? The snake was, uh, was holding tight just as she described. A firefighter cut off, oh my, cut off the snake's head with a pocket knife. That's an intense firefighter. That's an intense pocket knife, too. And the 45-year-old woman who who hasn't been identified was taken by ambulance to a hospital for treatment. The woman told the dispatcher during the call she had rescued two boa constrictors on Wednesday and that she owned nine ball pythons. So you reckon Sam Jackson Sheesh. is going to be signing on for snakes on your face anytime soon? Snakes on your face? Maybe he's done uh, snakes on a plane, and then at least on this show we've played trailers for uh, snakes in a toilet, snakes in a bed. Uh, we've even done babies in a lobby, mm-hmm. in a hospital lobby. Oh, oh and there was uh, snakes, snakes at JFK. Snakes in your JF- car? Was it- snakes in a car, mm-hmm. and there was snakes at JFK. Okay. In a snakes, snakes in a JFK mailroom. Oh. It's very specific. Yes. Um, wow. See, yeah. Anything that uh, can eat me or crush me to death, that frightens me. That is a fair fear to have. Yes. No it's one's, just no one's so... going to fault you for that. Like irrational fear, fears like clowns that we can laugh at each other for having. Yeah. But being afraid of a thing that can literally latch onto you and kill you. It's unnatural is what it is. Yeah. Fish should not be eating me. Correct. Reptiles should not be 
chomping on me. Let this be a lesson to all those of you who save boa constrictors and keep them around in your home. Yeah. They might eat you. And snakes should not be biting my face. Correct. Yeah, and look at the thanks that this woman got for rescuing a boa constrictor. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, thanks for rescuing me. I'm going to bite your face off now. I think there are professionals that rescue boa constrictors. If I see a boa constrictor in need of rescue... My first instinct is going to be to call the people that rescue boa constrictors, not to try to take on this humanitarian task myself. My father-in-law, bless him, uh, showed up to uh, wrangle a boa constrictor at somebody's house, a church friend. Aw. And uh, I certainly never would have done that. What a neighborly fella. Exactly what you said to do. Just call the professionals. There are people who handle this sort of thing. They get paid to do it and who are not terrified to death of it. Anyway, fears of animals that can eat you. Very real here on the Matt Townsend Show. When we return, we will be continuing on with the fun and helping you be more informed on the Matt Townsend Show. Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. KBYU-FM, HD2, Provo. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson once again filling in for Dr. Matt. And I'm joined here uh, by Terry South, our wonderful producer. And in just a moment, Sean O'Neill will be here as well, running the board for us. In the meantime, we're uh, playing it solo here. And today we've got a great show. We're going to be speaking about the prison system and maybe some of the issues with it. As well as, why aren't we granted more access to these prisons? And Dr. Matt, I'm sure, feels like he's he's in prison because he can't seem to escape this horrible, horrible cough that he's got. And I can't seem to escape this terrible, horrible mood leg I've got going on. Mood leg? Mood leg. What's a mood leg? We talked about this the other day. Does it change color with temperature? (laughs) It changes color depending on... Does it predict coming storms? You, you know, I I do wake up and uh, will just randomly shout out to my wife, I feel a storm coming. It's these new abilities. Just picture Peter Parker being bitten by a spider. Okay. He can climb on walls mm-hmm. and shoot webs. Yeah. Um, I can predict the weather. Okay. With a gimpy leg. Yeah. <laughs> Not sure how it works. I don't ask questions. I just follow it. Anyway, uh, a great show ahead. Uh, We're also going to be speaking about apologies. Who was it that sings that song, Too Late to Apologize? I don't know, but I know the song. I probably have it. I just don't know who sang it. It was a little little off-key, but it's not really a song I listen to a whole lot. No, I'm bugged. I have to look it up. (laughs) Talk amongst yourselves. It's going to eat at you until you know the answer. And then we're also going to be talking about, is dirt good for our kids? You know, there's always this, oh, you can't touch that, it fell on the ground. Or, oh, you're good, That you, the five-second rule, you can still get that. But maybe dirt is a good thing. 
So we've, as I said, we have a great show. Terry South is still looking up the answer to oh, who wrote. It's it's One Republic. Really? With Timbaland. Oh, isn't that didn't isn't that the guy that does those uh, shoes? No, that's a tiny that's Timbaland. A, that's a brand of shoe. But okay. This is a, a rap artist with One Republic. Huh. They cofabulated something. Okay. Is that even a word, cofabulated? <laughs> it is it now. Yeah. It is now. So, yeah, some sad news waking up this morning. In addition to discovering Dr. Matt won't be in today, uh, my Los Angeles Dodgers lost last night. But I guess you have to lose every once in a while. How many have they won? They've won. They, if they would have won, it would have been their 80th game. And it, how many? You have what? <laughs> it's August. You still have all of September, which is... Yeah. Really? And then there's like, you know, the playoffs start, what, mid-October? No, no, no. Uh, The last game is October 1st, so they'll start shortly after that. But, I mean, they lost to the number two team in their division, but they're they're like 14 games ahead of them. Right. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. You're going to lose. You can't win them all. You can win most. No, they have to win. Well, they'll win. We've been waiting for they, too long. They have done enough to purchase <laughs> a World Series. Now they actually have to execute, and they seem to be doing well. They'll pull it through. I know it. I just know it. Anyway, all that fun ahead. But first, let's head over to Terry South, who's going to give us a taste of what's going on around the rest of the country. Terry? So North Korea says it was carefully examining the possibility of launching a preemptive strike on the U.S. territory of Guam. Just hours after President Trump said further threats from the rogue regime would be met with fire and fury like the world has never seen. Oh, great. Which is really close to a statement that President Harry S. Truman made after we dropped the... uh, nuclear bomb on Hiroshima in 1945. You can watch it on YouTube. I kept seeing that all over the place. Like, hey, there's this video of Truman. It sounds like something else. Wow. Uh, Trump's comments came following reports that North Korean military is able to produce miniaturized nuclear warheads that can be attached to ballistic missiles. North Korea's state-run news agency published a statement from a spokesperson for the Korean People's Army who said preemptive strike plan would be put into practice on a multi-current and consecutive way in any moment. What is multi-current and consecutive way any moment? Hmm. I'm not sure. I have no idea. It seems like it's a lot of words. I need to condense that. Yeah. Says early this morning, uh, Secretary of State Rex Tillerson told Americans that there is nothing to be uh, imminent. There's no imminent threat to be worried about. Sleep tight. Okay. So I, who you? I don't who take a lot of. I don't take a lot of comfort in that statement, but. Again, we uh, something that keeps happening is that Trump says one thing, his Secretary of State says another thing, <laughs> and we're not exactly sure who's. What's the policy? What's the directive? Are we fire and fury, or are we sleep tight? You're fine. This is essentially a bunker in here, right? No, we're pretty su- no, no? no, 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 oh, no. But there is. I saw this yesterday. You're worried about the North Koreans, and if they have a missile that can hit us with a nuclear weapon, they they. In theory, have a weapon, a missile that could get over here. It's only gotten like the Sea of Japan, but because of the way it's working, analysts look at it and think maybe. Yeah. yeah. Now they're saying they have a weapon they can make small enough because you have to make it small and light enough that you can carry it on this missile sure. all the way over here. Yeah. They're, they're, they think they have that, but they don't have like a nose cone that can protect all that from reentry into the atmosphere. Hmm. And they don't have like guidance system to actually track and target and specific point 
So they're still a ways out. They're a ways out, and and you watch the news, and it's like there's a countdown happening. That's kind of the the feeling that the people are putting out there, and then you get the State Department that's like, settle down, we're okay. So I think that the the thing to do, Jimmy Kimmel did a skit yesterday where he uh-huh. goes out on the street and he talks to people, and he asks them. These are just people in Los Angeles, yeah. and he's he's picking the people that are goofy and they're going to give the right answer he's looking for, and so he asks them. Should we attack North Korea? And they're like, oh, yeah, absolutely. And then he holds up a map and he goes, point to North Korea. And nobody <laughs> knew where North Korea was. So, Wow. It's kind of funny. So I, be a little informed. Be informed, but it's not a big deal yeah. at the moment. It's a big deal because, you know, they have a weapon and there's a lot of, you know, ramped up discussion. But they're not like an countdown situation. Yeah. So... I got to check that out. It's still uneasy to just hear somebody say, yeah, sleep tight. And then somebody else is saying fire and fury and yeah. explosions. And We've stuff, got so. time. So um, moving on, the manufacturing sector holds an important place in our political imagination. The common wisdom is that nearly 30% decline in U.S. manufacturing jobs since 2000 was a key factor in the uh, the current, you know, the last electoral process because of the problem with manufacturing jobs. Yeah. That's, that's why the election ended up the way it did. The subtext of this idea is that these manufacturing jobs are desirable, and American workers wouldn't give them up easily. But according to uh, analysis out of the St. Louis uh, Federal Reserve, the rate at which workers are quitting manufacturing jobs rather than getting fired has remained steady even as the number of jobs has fallen. Uh-huh. The trend today is that manufacturing workers are quitting their jobs at an accelerating rate, suggesting they're leaving for better pay and working conditions in other fields. While the loss of manufacturing jobs will have been devastating for many communities, it also is true that many workers leave manufacturing jobs if given the chance. Interesting. So they're saying the people are What's leaving on before they get fired because they find another job, yeah. a different field, they're moving somewhere else. So it's not just they're gone and there's nothing. Right. Some people there is. There is a problem there, but there is a, a large chunk that are able to move on to something else. Well, that's encouraging that there's more work to be had out there. Some more uh, Manufacturing helps. Yeah, that, That's a absolutely. good indicator of a strong economy, but mm-hmm. if we can do something else. This news came out yesterday. I found it very disturbing. Disney announced Tuesday it's <gasps> dumping Netflix. Oh, I know. In 2019, Disney will end its streaming deal with Netflix as it launches its very own streaming service. Later that year, Disney and Netflix struck their deal back in 2012. Uh, it only kicked into effect this last year. I started seeing a lot of Disney movies, like Moana just showed up on yeah. Netflix. I'm like, whoa, look they were at that. on there all that long. And uh, it appears that, uh, so Disney's new streaming service will host its latest movies, starting with its planned 2019 releases of Frozen 2 and Toy Story 4. Disney said it also intends to make a significant investment in developed movies and TV programs exclusive to its streaming platform. Mm. The platform will be based on technology developed by BAM Tech, a video company founded by Major League Baseball. Really? In, uh, oh, ESPN. Well, no? No, th- this is separate they- from everything. This Major League Baseball, It's so far it looks like it's the best streaming uh, platform technology that's out there, right? Interesting. Every day they stream every single baseball game at the same time. Ooh. And you you click on their app, it just opens, it doesn't fail. I, I believe HBO built their streaming service on top of Major League Baseball's technology. Wow. And now ESPN or not uh, Disney is buying a huge chunk of it for like one point five billion or something like that. So they can buy a chunk of it and build their streaming platform 
in the with this service. So you're saying I still have a year left to watch Rogue One on Netflix? Yes. Okay. And apparently those movies will stay. The movies that are on Netflix right now will stay on Netflix. Really? But they will all. I mean, the new movies will all show up on the Disney app, not on There's whatever not that be, will be. I guess. I guess that is part of their original agreement with Netflix, right? So they're okay. not going back on that. They're just going to stop giving them new content. Yeah. In addition to its uh, theatrical streaming service, Disney in 2018 will launch an ESPN streaming service. Now, now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Before we get on to yeah, ESPN. Yeah. At some point, those Disney movies that are on there now are going to expire, as they typically do. There's, so, an, there's an end to the agreement. So, but initially, at that point, they'll take it and put it on their Disney app. Right. Okay. So initially, that stuff will be there, but you know, all these deals run out and content leaves. Yeah. Okay. So what? What about ESPN? They're they're going to launch a streaming service that's separate. I, what what they've been talking about is right now, if you have a cable subscription you can go and put your passwords in and get espn content right online or through whatever whatever device you have mm-hmm. and then um now what they're, they want to do is have a standalone service that you can just pay a fee to and receive espn content that'd be great that you you, you don't need a cable service cable package you can just Give them like 10 bucks a month or whatever and you can watch your sports there i'm all for that the problem is oh no if every, everybody out there has their own service, CBS has one we talked about yesterday. They're going to launch their new Star Trek right. series there. Disney has theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, much to my uh, sorrow, I guess you could say, at the beginning of August, all uh, DC Comics cartoons <sighs> on Netflix were removed. No. Because DC is launching their own streaming service. Oh, boy. Because they're going to put their movies, they have they have hundreds of cartoons and all kinds of stuff they can put on there. That's its own stream. So now you have to pay ten bucks here, ten bucks here, ten bucks here. So we're paying 10 just bucks as here. much as cable. Yeah. Eventually, once you wow. and it'll be more because it's not subsidized by being together in a package. Oh they're my each goodness. individual. So then it's like, what do you pay for? Yeah. Now, now, now your choices are becoming even more confusing, and you're not getting what you want. It's more expensive. I guess we just don't watch TV anymore. Just go to the theater to see the Disney movies. Go to a restaurant or bar for the games. There you go. And then uh, read comics. I guess. It's, <laughs> it, my, my kid's like, let's watch this, Dad. I go, nope, that's been removed. Sorry. He goes, oh. he goes, is that on the DC channel? I went, yeah. He goes, do we have that? I go, no, we don't. He goes, oh. oh. It's, hard to, it's hard to explain all this to a six-year-old. This is annoying. It is. This is a problem, just like you said. I didn't realize it before. And finally, this might get your hopes up okay. in mankind and humanity in general. The Little Caesars Pizza may be changing the pizza game. The chain is unveiling a machine. The company says it will test run, which allows customers to skip the line, grab their pizza, and go. And that's the only pizza place with a line, by the way. It is. It says, according to the Detroit-based pizza company, the Pizza Portal is the first heated self-service device that streamlines the process of getting pizza, letting the customer pick up their mobile order with hot pies waiting for them. Customers get hot, freshly prepared custom products in hand seconds after they walk in the door, says their press release. Seconds. The news news services. Uh, the new service is aimed at helping customers have an easier and faster way to get a pizza using the company's mobile app. People will be able to order and prepay. The app uh, notifying customers when the order is ready. Then upon arriving at the store, the customer can skip the line, input a three-digit PIN or scan a code, and retrieve their order from behind a glass window. The Pizza Portal, also called the Reserve and Ready, 
Hmm. As they're trying to market it that way, I guess. We'll undergo a trial run in select city stores and expand other markets later this year. I'm guessing there's going to be a bit of a learning curve, and there will be big lines, bigger lines maybe even initially. When you're putting in codes or trying to scan your phone, people can't necessarily get that right the first time. See, now, not not to beat up Little Caesars too much, but can't they take some of this money, which is I assume is substantial, right. and just charge us maybe a dollar more. Improve the pizza. Improve the pizza. Well. I would pay a dollar more for, for a little better pizza. Do you want speed or quality? Uh, I want it's, quality. It's tough to have both. I really want quality they, They're focusing the speed. on speed. I, I just, it's so rare that I, I feel like I need a, you know, all of a sudden, last minute, I need a pizza right now. Mm. Usually I plan a little ahead. Even if, I mean, even our last minute meals are at least an hour or two in advance. Right. Yeah. I go for quality over speed. Well, if you're driving home and you want pizza now. I would probably just go through Wendy's and get a Frosty or something (laughs) if I had to eat on the run. Anyway, these are uh, first world problems, by the way. Nothing to be too concerned about. Uh, coming up next, though, our, we'll be speaking with our guest, Heather Ann Thompson, who is talking to us about a problem that maybe we should be concerned about, our country's prison system. That's up next when we return. This is the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. The severe heat in Texas prisons are linked to several deaths and lawsuits. A new court order is forcing authorities to move over 1,000 Texas prisoners to cooler cells, saying the inmates need air conditioning. In fact, the judge ruled that temperatures in some of the prisons are unconstitutional. Do prisoners deserve the same human and and constitutional rights as those of us that are outside of prison? Well, here to speak with us today is Heather Ann Thompson, Ph.D., author of the book Blood in the Water, The Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and Its Legacy. Heather, uh, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, Great to be here. So this is such an interesting topic, and I I read your article, and I I was hoping you could tell us, first of all, what are your thoughts currently of the American prison system? Well, one of the things that your listeners should know is that I didn't actually know very much about the prison system um, throughout most of my life. In fact, I was much more like, I think, every person out there, which is that I just knew that there were prisons and that people did bad things and then they got sentenced and they got locked up and that was the end of it. And it wasn't until I started doing research for my book, which was about um, a prison protest, 45 years ago, and I really started to dig into it, that I understood, and that was, by the way, 13 years ago, uh, I understood (laughs) that we have really been, you know, sold a false bill of goods about both what prisons, what we think prisons are doing, what actually happens behind those walls, and that it turns out it is a real uh, ethical and moral crisis, that there are really terrible things that go on in our name. And that the people behind bars, it turns out, are in fact us. They are, you know, our children, our our uncles, our aunts, our our friends, people right. who have made bad decisions. 
Um, and it turns out that we would be horrified if we knew, in fact, what happened to most people uh, that were sentenced to prison. Interesting. I want to talk a little a little bit about access here in just a, a minute. But first, I want to ask you, why do you think it is America has way more people in prison per capita than other nations? Well, that's a, a great question. And actually, it was one that really perplexed me. I couldn't understand how how could it be that um, our country, in, in, in many measures, is more democratic, uh, more egalitarian than, than so many on the globe? And yet, we have more people in prison than any other country, including the most repressive, the most totalitarian. And it turns out that um, it's not why we thought. Uh, we thought that that's because our people were committing more crimes, that we began this huge prison buildup because crime was rampant in the 1960s and 70s, and that we had no choice. And it turns out that that's actually not the case. We began a major, major war on crime and war on drugs when crime was remarkably uh, was not remarkable, certainly not remarkable from a historical standpoint. We had many worse decades before it had not responded this way. So the way that we understand it now is that we made a policy choice to treat, um, you know, social ills, uh, everything from poverty to drug addiction to mental illness through the prison system. We became very punitive uh, rather than through a health system, through a social welfare system. And that accounts for our numbers in large part. Wow. You know, during the break, our producer Terry talked about uh, somebody that he talked to in prison that wasn't uh, all that concerned that he was there in prison. You know, there were plenty of open basketball courts, never had to wait to play a game. And obviously, it seems like most prisoners would prefer not to be there. But do you do you feel like uh, for some prisoners, it's it's sort of a big timeout rather than than these prisons are actually trying to help them fix their behaviors? You know, that's actually it's a, it's a great question, because I do think that that description of prison, um, you know, guys laying around <clears throat> playing basketball, having a great time watching television, getting free meals. Um, that is, in some respects, the false bill of goods I was talking about. Right. It isn't that some people don't uh, make the best of prison. That is to say, particularly people that come from horrible social circumstances, severe poverty, uh, drug-addicted families, uh, you name the host of problems they could be coming from. Uh, for some, prison feels like a bit of a relief. Indeed, uh, if you have no money to finally get uh, decent meals and to finally get health care, for example, could be welcome. But it is a sad day in our nation when that is where people have to go to get basic human needs met. And the reality is that for the vast, vast majority of people, uh, that is not the experience. I have been in many prisons, and I can tell you that this idea of people laying around partying and, and um, you know, living high on the hog is just its ridiculous. Most prisoners are actually being fed on far too little food. They have no money so that they are subject to very exploitative uh, prices in their commissary just to get basic things like underwear and shirts. They don't get to see their children because they're moved to prison so, so far away uh, from the communities um, where they were, where they live. Um, their phone calls, people profit off of these places. Phone calls are, you know, $15 sometimes for wow. a of conversation. Um, 
this is a this is a very very exploitative ugly place and the problem is um we've we've decided it's okay because we don't we don't see this as an extension of our society yeah you know you you mentioned that it's it's obviously so sad that some people feel like they have to go to prison to get some of these necessities that they lack in life when we lived in Seattle, I was in a grocery store and witnessed a, a man uh, have to wait for the police because he was caught shoplifting. And uh, we were told that, you know, this is a problem that that homeless people will will purposely try to get caught so that they can spend time in a jail cell. So they actually have a place to sleep. That is exactly. that is so unfortunate. Um, so we mentioned when I introduced you here at the, at the beginning of the interview, we uh, mentioned the the example of the Texas prisoners being moved to cooler cells. Do you feel like prisoners should have the same rights as people who have never committed a crime? Absolutely, because the one thing that you do not give up in the U.S. Constitution just because you are convicted of doing something wrong is your citizenship and your humanity. Yeah. So, you know, we have to separate out this question of how does one take responsibility for a bad deed versus do they stop becoming a human being? Do they stop becoming part of our body politic, our citizenry? And it, this all see, gets very muddy when we imagine these people to be uh, axe murderers, serial killers, and pedophiles. Uh, people get very, very clear in their mind, oh, well, we don't care what happens to those people. Well, first of all, um, I suggest that if, if it turned out that any of those even horrific people happened to be one of your family members, you would want them to take responsibility, you would want them removed, but you certainly wouldn't want them tortured and you wouldn't want them abused. You would want them hopefully fixed. So Absolutely. Return to society, they would not uh, commit more harm. Um, the reality is that in prisons today, like the ones in Texas you mentioned, I just did a story on prisons in St. Louis, similar situation. Um, I mean, these cells were about 115 degrees. Imagine being in a box. There are no windows. There is no airflow. There is no water. And you are baking there. And people literally die. Uh, prisoners are not the most healthy group anyway, because remember, we've already talked about these are people mentally ill, people who are poor people with bad health conditions even to start with often. Um, but we're also talking about kids. You know, we again, we, we don't know who we're talking about when we say prisoners. We're talking about um, about 77,000 juveniles in our society. These are kids, 10, 11, 12 years old. And if they're locked up in states like Alabama or Texas or, you know, even in St. Louis, there's not a stitch of air conditioning in those places, and they're essentially locked in sweat boxes. That's inhumane. Right? Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what you've done. That's, that's not what the jury sentenced you to. They sentenced you to confinement. They didn't sentence you to torture. Right. And, you know, it's kind of a scary thought when you think about all of these people around the world that have never committed a crime that, given the opportunity, might do something rather violent or illegal, you know, if the power goes out or if there's, you know, mass hysteria. And, it, you know, that's, that's all conjecture, of course. But uh, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Heather Ann Johnson, who's giving us a peek into the U.S. prison system. And, Heather, I just want to uh, get back to that question about access. So, first of all, how much of our tax money goes into supporting these prisons? 
billions and billions of dollars. And it depends on your state and it depends on a lot of factors, how many institutions of correction a given state has, but it is it is billions and billions of dollars. And again, that might be money that the society decides is worth spending, but it is really extraordinary to imagine that we hand over more cash now for prisons than we ever have. And, and indeed, this is not a finite amount of money, or, or this is a finite amount of money. This is money that we would have been spending on communities and schools. And we do so without asking for any sense, any accountability of, is it effective? Does it make our society safe? And just in the last five years, we've started to do some real probing, um, a real research probing. And guess what? Not only does it not make our society safer, it actually makes it less safe. Really? Heavily incarcerated communities are frayed communities. These are communities with children with higher poverty rates. These are children, these are communities with higher violence rates. So it turns out that this, these, these mass prisons we're building don't make us safer. They actually make us less safe. The way we treat people inside of them is quite inhumane, and I suspect most people wouldn't be able to stomach it if they see it firsthand. And then, of course, there's the thing that you mentioned just before you reintroduced me, which is this question of who are the criminals? Um, there's this wonderful website. It's, it's, I don't have anything to do with it, but I came across it for my classes, and it's called We Are All Criminals. And I invite anyone to, to go to this website because, of course, it does remind us uh, that um, there's no such thing as a human being in this society that is, uh, that is pure, right? That everybody has done something. And the question is, why do we have a system that punishes some people for the same things much harsher than others? Right. So that's everything from drugs to mental illness to um, even theft. Um, so... Again, we're not talking about let's excuse criminality. We're just saying equal justice under the law, first of all, right? Let's police people equally, let's arrest them equally, and let's treat them equally once they are arrested. But also, let's treat them as we would want to be treated. I, I suspect that our listeners, uh, you know, young people and old alike, um, we would never want to be judged for the rest of our life for our worst acts. Right. We would want to atone for our worst act. And then move forward as a part of our society. So that's the core of it. And that's why when we spend billions and billions of dollars, at the very least, we should have access to prisons to see what goes on in them in our name. Okay, so let's talk about that. You know, we mentioned that we're spending billions in in tax money on and funding these prisons. Why is it that we ha- there's such an overwhelming lack of access to these prisons? And then also, let's talk a little bit about why that is so important to gain access for us. Well, the fa- the question of why we don't have access, I must say, um, I I get asked this a lot. In fact, that's why I did the article that you mentioned, and I have to say, I, it still baffles me. Um, you know, historically, we had this kind of what we called the hands-off doctrine on prisons, which was to say that state prisons could run any way they wanted to because they didn't want the feds looking over their shoulder. This goes back to the kind of era of um, heavy emphasis on state rights. We still kind of have that. That's, that's part of the ethos. But the bigger problem is this long, long history of not treating prisoners as human beings. And then from that, everything else stems. It means that 
They don't have the right necessarily to reach out to the outside. We on the outside don't have the right to talk to them. We put our faith in their keepers to do the ugly work of corrections. Well, we have some checks on that. We have freedom of information so that we can, you know, request, for example, from a prison, how many hours of solitary confinement do your 10-year-olds do in your juvenile facility? Like, we can ask that question through freedom of information. But all they have to say is, that's a question of privacy, or that's a security issue. And then we learn nothing. Um, So there's a long history of trying to get access, but an equally long history of institutions pushing back and saying, under the guise of it's a security risk or it's a privacy concern, not telling us anything. The upshot is when we don't know, horrible, horrible things go on behind bars. And that's a problem. Again, we're speaking with Heather Ann Thompson, author of the book Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. And she's she's helping us understand the U.S. Uh, prison system a little better. And when we return, we're going to continue the conversation and uh, get into a little more the uh, nitty gritty of the prison system and and how we compare to other countries. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt, and we're speaking with Dr. Heather Ann Thompson, who's a native Detroiter and historian on faculty of the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor in the departments of Afro-American and African Studies, History, and the Residential College. And her recent book, Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy, has been profiled on television and radio programs across the country, and it just won the Pulitzer Prize in history. Congratulations, Heather, and welcome back. Thanks so much. So uh, before the break, we, we talked about the problem currently of a lack of access and and why it's important, really, for us to have that access we are paying, you know, this. Our tax dollars are going into supporting these prisons. Uh, but what about what about the role of private prison companies? Do they? Is that something that could help out? Are they? Would those be humane? Are they cost effective? Talk to us about private prison companies. Well, unfortunately, that's not a problem solver. Um, we we uh, talk a lot about private prisons in the media. Um, it turns out, though, that that's a, actually a very small proportion of our prisons. There's only about maybe 7 to 9% of uh, all prisons are private. Now, that changes when we're talking about immigration detention centers. Those are overwhelmingly private, and they're run horrifically as well. Uh, but for private prisons in the regular system, they're not very many, and they're not better. In fact, when you run a prison for profit, it turns out you want to make money. And when you want to make money, it means that uh, your board chairman uh, will, like, lobby Congress for tougher drug laws and and lobby to make sure that the phone company can charge whatever it wants uh, of prisoners and so forth. So it turns out that injecting the profit motive does not make things worse. It actually makes – or it does not make things better. It actually makes them worse. 
um, and that um, the reason is similar. It's the similar question of lack of access, and the origin of the problem is similar, which is if we don't treat the people behind bars as part of our broader citizenry, say the way uh, folks in Norway do or the way the folks in Sweden do, if we don't do that, then we run into this problem that behind those closed doors, terrible things happen, and we only hear about them uh, when someone dies or someone is severely wounded or hurt. Yeah, and you know, you mentioned this focus on profit. It seems like there wouldn't be much concern for, you know, the air conditioner working properly or having quality meals and things of that nature. Exactly. Or even making sure that the children in there are getting educated or making sure that when people get their parole date that they're actually released. If you want your beds paid for, by the state and you're a private prison company, you don't want those beds empty, right? Yeah. And you'll fill that bed in Arizona, even if that prisoner actually comes from Hawaii, if you can imagine. And what does that mean? Well, that means that that person who may be in because uh, they're a, a severe drug addict and they're trying to get help, they won't see their families the entire time they're incarcerated because their families can't afford to come to Arizona from Hawaii. But we know that if we want someone to return to society and become a better human being in that society, uh, it's actually very important that they still have visits, that they still are tethered to that community. So privatization actually creates another problem for the system. Wow. And, you know, I'm looking at your article here and just taking a look at the numbers, 2.3 million people behind bars, another 840,000 Americans being supervised on parole, 3.7 million uh, being monitored on probation. Do, I mean, should we have that many people in prison? What what no. sort of options are there to other options to discipline these people? Well, to, to, to put the numbers simply, we've got about 750,000 people uh, I'm sorry, 7,500,000 people under correctional control every day. Wow. And we've got almost 100 million people who are in this country with a criminal record. So the answer is clearly it doesn't work. Right. We're paying for it. It doesn't work. And by the way, once you have a criminal record, and we all know this, if we've had a, a kid with a problem or a parent with a problem, they can't get a job once they've had a record. They can't re-enter society because that's like a stigma, a mark on them. So then, of course, they're they're impoverished. So then the likelihood of them committing uh, an offense increases again, and it becomes this vicious cycle. Our prisons have a recidivism rate of about 70%. We would not pay money to a college if the dropout rate was 70%. Right, we exactly. We would not hire a business if the profits or if the products we bought from that business were faulty at a rate of 70%. So, so imagine the amount of money we're putting in a system that has a recidivism rate of over 70%. It, it, they're failures. They don't work. So then the question, as you just said, is, well, what do we do? Well, the wonderful news is that that bar is actually a lot uh, shorter, lower, closer to us than we might imagine. And first of all, we have international models of what other places do. They have much shorter sentences. They tether people much more to the communities from whence they came to make sure that they're still, uh, you know, they have a place to return to, that they have incentive to improve, they have incentive to do better. 
but we also have kind of a moral compass. And I always go back to this, even though I'm a historian, I'm not a theologian, I still say that there's this moral answer to your question. And to put it quite simply, we should treat the people in prison the way that we would hope we were treated if we ran afoul of the law, or we would insist that our own children were treated should they run afoul of the law. So in other words, imagine the person you love the most and imagine that they do something, even if it is horrific. Imagine you find out the worst possible thing you could find out about one of your loved ones. The question then becomes, what would you want to do? And it's quite simple. You would want them to take responsibility. You would want them perhaps to be removed from society until they got help. But you wouldn't want them in solitary confinement. You wouldn't want them tortured. And you certainly wouldn't want to give them a sentence of 50 years because you would know that every human being has the capacity to be redeemed and to figure it out and to get better. And if you put someone in prison that long, they'll never get better, right? They'll get worse and worse every year. So, the, so there's so many ways we can improve this, starting with shorter sentences um, and starting with just kind of disrupting our idea about what we think prisons are doing right now. I love those examples you just gave because, I mean, it's basically the golden rule. And, you know, not everybody obviously believes in God or a higher power. But if you're a parent, of course, you are going or, you know, if you have another loved one, you're going to want that person to be able to make the change or you would want to be treated fairly if you were in that position, too. So we've gotten so hard hearted that when someone says, oh, so-and-so just got a sentence for five years. Our immediate reaction in the society is, are you kidding me? Only five years? Yeah. But the thing is, in other societies, people understand that five years is a long time. And I always tell my students, when you enter college, think about it. Can you even imagine who you're going to be in five years when you're a year out of college? (laughs) Like, you will change so much in those four years. And by the fifth year, maybe by then you'll have children, you'll be married, you know, who knows where you'll be, right? Yeah. And you got to put five years in perspective. Well, we hand out life sentences and 30-year and 40-year sentences like candy. Yeah. And that's the thing. We, we just have to adjust our thinking, and we can't do it if we don't know what's really going on, thus the question of access. Heather, we've got a few minutes left, and I know this is kind of a big question to, to open up at the end of the interview, but... Uh, Do you believe that there is a racial bias in the process of who's getting the prison time and who's not getting the prison time? Well, there's no question. Uh, And I can say, look, I'm a white woman, and um, I I see very, very clearly that white people in general, including, you know, my own children, are less likely to be pulled over than um, people of color, whether they're Latino, whether they're African-American. We know that that's true. We know that white people actually use more drugs. More white people use drugs and sell drugs than than black people, but that's not reflected in the drug arrests. Uh, We know that police are deployed in black neighborhoods far more than in white neighborhoods, even though, again, there's tons of drug use, tons of domestic violence, and so forth. So, yes, our system is skewed actually before prisons, which is that we have to start treating uh, people of color as human beings, not just not just prisoners, but before we even get to prison, we treat all people as human beings uh, with equality under the law. And then 
everything else will start to sort itself out, right? Because we won't have so many people policed. We won't have so many people in prison. Yeah. And then, Heather, just in closing here, what's something that we can do? People that do not have a criminal record, what's something that we can do to better understand the prison system and and maybe not be so quick to judge other people who do have a criminal record? You know, I recommend everyone at a university to uh, reach out as that university into the local prison system so that your students can actually uh, get to know them, actually do courses inside, teach courses inside. We have a program called Inside Out, which is phenomenal. It's national. It's something that could come to BYU or any number of places. Um, it's a life changer. It's a it's um it's a way of doing community service. And if we don't want to, com- you know, if we don't do that, we can set up community organizations to help children of the incarcerated. You know, reading, tutoring, and the minute we do that. All of a sudden, we are we have access to that world, uh, and the more we know, the more we can tell other people, and also, of course, to just keep demanding answers. If you read in your local newspaper that prisoners are protesting, ask yourself why, and ask yourself what's going on, not take the position of, oh, well, what do they want, you know, another color television, because that's a myth, and, and we have to not, not fall prey to that. Heather on Heather Ann Thompson, thank you so much for being on the Matt Townsend Show this morning. Her name is Heather Ann Thompson, and uh, she is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy. And she's done a, a wonderful job of helping us better understand the American prison system. When we come back, we will continue the discussion here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show here on BYU Radio Sirius XM 143. We just finished speaking with Heather Ann Thompson, the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning author of, uh, where did that go? Oh, here it is. Of the book Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its legacy. We just had a great conversation with her about the U.S. prison system and some of the problems that uh, occur there. And uh, now Terry South has a bit of news that he wants to share with us. So, I had like a hot water heater go out over the weekend. We yes. called a company. They showed up. The mm-hmm. guy had his truck. It was all that way. When you have to step away from like a company situation and find an independent contractor to do something, ah. it becomes very taxing because you're like, how do I trust this guy? How do I know? There? There's certain services you can go and check backgrounds and see if they're you know, better business bureau, what's yeah. their licensing, do they have insurance, that kind of stuff. But it's still tough because you're kind of just taking this person's word. I, I had my bottle, my uh, basement remodeled, and the guy just, he, I mean, he had a company and a website and all this, but still, I mean, you can just set that th- those types of things up. Mm-hmm. How reputable is that person? Yeah. It's kind of a, it's, it's a stress for some people who are doing this. This story out of Florida, a contractor apparently came up with a morbid way of getting out of reimbursing angry clients. 
Mark Anthony Perez, 52, being accused of botched renovations on an 825-square-foot home in, in Florida and then faking his own death to avoid the disgruntled owners. <laughs> oh, no. um, Glenn and Judith Holland hired Perez in March 2016 to put in a new kitchen and remodel their bathroom and install a new water heater, among other renovations. They gave Perez a key in April and headed back to their home, their home in Pennsylvania. So it sounds like they had like a summer home. And uh, over the next eight months, Perez demanded more money and more money and didn't really do any work on the house. And then he just sort of disappeared. Interesting. And uh, they had to pay Perez $7,000 for this home that was in shambles. But when they they texted Perez, they got a message back that says, this is Mark's daughter. Dad passed away on the 7th of December in a car accident. Sorry. Wow. Oh, my goodness. As they rented a nearby place and paid other contractors $15,000 to fix the work that was already done by Perez. Um, they they found that he wasn't licensed. He hadn't gotten the right permits. They heard rumors that he wasn't dead. <laughs> and uh, finally, they got police involved. And now it's a criminal matter. And he was uh, put into court. And it says, I never thought someone would go to this extreme to rip somebody off. Yeah, and it's tough when you live out of the state. It's it's tough to monitor that sort of thing. You're putting a lot of thing. faith. Even, Absolutely. I'm, even in my situation, I'm just upstairs. This guy was in the basement fixing my basement, and he did a great job, and we had a great – it was a great experience that way, but still, it's kind of a challenge. Luckily, he didn't die during the transaction. Yes. We did have a painter that was in that room with no air circulation for like Ooh. 12 hours, though. And I went down, and I gave him a bottle of water just was, to make sure he was alive. Wasn't lead paint, was it? I, no. Okay, it's good. It's on my wall in my family room, so it's different. But, yeah, it's just it's, – there's a challenge when a guy sends you a text saying he's dead, you know. Some people call in sick. Some people call in dead. Whatever you have to do to get that money, I guess. Anyway, we'll take a break. When we come back, we will continue the fun here on the Matt Townsend Show on BYU Radio, Sirius XM 143.